Okay, here we are today. I have Mr. Let's do this here. Um, I have a William Mitchell referred. Do you prefer Bill or William? Bill's good. Bill? Okay, so I got William Mitchell of Palos Wealth Management. Before we get started on the podcast, I have to make a disclaimer as Bill works in, in the investing sector. So the opinions expressed by our guests are his own and are not necessarily those of Palos and therefore should not be viewed as investment advice. Anytime you're going to listen to a finance podcast, they're going to start with that. So um, great. We got that out of the way. Thank you so much for being on the podcast here today. Happy to be here. You excited? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm excited for this one too. So there's a lot of stuff going on right now in the um, in the economy, I guess you could say, in the world, geopolitics, there's a lot going on. There's a shift happening. Stuff's changing. And that's why I want to have you on. You've been in the investment industry for how long, Bill? I started in 89. In 1989? Yeah. All right. So here, <laughs> let's, let's, let's get into this right here. I was born in 1988. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> 1989, and you were doing uh, what back then in 1989? Uh, yeah, so I mean, I did the classic, uh, I guess, West Island thing. Okay. Uh, you know, high school, and then on to John Abbott, and then from John Abbott to Concordia. Yeah. And then after I graduated, uh, it wasn't a great job market back then. I ended up working in retail, actually, for Eaton's. Um, what did you study at, at Concordia, commerce. by the way? Yeah, commerce, pre-commerce pre okay. at Abbott and okay. commerce at Concordia. Okay. Um, so it, it's kind of funny, I you know, a couple of years after I graduated, I had a couple of high school friends that I would see here and there. Yeah. And Bill, know, I'm just going to ask you for the mic. Yeah. At, got it. <laughs> every single guest that comes on, I'm always like, uh, I'm telling you right now, it's that people just end up getting a... I should lock my chair because I tend to sway too. <laughs> but yeah. Okay. So you're taught, you were saying. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, I had a couple of buddies who, uh, at age 26, let's say, uh, had a Mercedes, had a great job, great suits. Uh, and, you know, talking to them, what do you do? It's like, well, I'm a trader at the stock exchange. So right away, I didn't know a lot about the stock exchange. I knew a lot about nice cars and having money, which is kind of what- Nice cars and know. girls. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I managed to get into a program at the time, which was called the Montreal Exchange Apprenticeship Program for Traders. So basically okay. they took 25 people a year and you went through a training program for three months on the floor of the exchange. So you did all the required courses, paired with a trader, and you learned the ropes. And was this associated with a, with the university, or this is no, just, just the Montreal Exchange? Okay. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, if you succeeded and 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 passed through it, I mean, you hoped to get a job on the floor. So yeah. uh, about nine months after graduating, uh, I did get a job on the floor, and kind of was very fortunate that I fast tracked right to being a trader without being a clerk or uh, an order taker on the on the. Uh, on the phone. So, um, you know, the stock exchange doesn't exist anymore uh, per se as, as a physical trading floor. Everything is done electronically now. But back in the day, I, I was so fortunate to have begun with the classic colored jackets, the hand signals, writing trade tickets by hand. Bye, bye, bye. So, so, so. Absolutely. Called open outcry trading back in the day. Okay. So it was done verbally. So if I may, I'll just go through how, how it's changed. From Absolutely. Back then to yes, now, right? yes, so, yes. If you wanted to buy 100 shares of Royal Bank, let's say, yeah. uh, back in the day, you would have a stockbroker. You would call him if it was your idea, or usually he would call you and say, you know, hey, Curtis, why don't we pick up 100 shares of uh, Royal Bank? So fine, let's do it. Uh, buy me 100 shares. So the order would go from the broker 
to the trading desk inside the firm. Then the order would be usually called in from the trading desk to a trader, to the clerk on the floor who would give the order to the trader. The trader would take an, the order to what was called the post. That's an area on the floor where let's say RBC shares were traded. Talk to the market maker, which is the job that I did uh, and say, you know, Bill, I want to buy hundred shares. I would match up with a paper order that I had in what was called the book, write up a triple a ticket and triplicate, timestamp it. Uh, a girl would, or usually a girl, I shouldn't say that in today's day and age, <laughs> yeah. uh, an operator would yeah. enter the trade on the ticker yeah. and the buy and sell orders would go back to the booth on the floor. From there, they would call the trading desk. The trading desk would call the broker. The broker would call the client and say, Curtis, congratulations, you bought 100 shares four hours ago. You know, that's how long maybe it would take for the whole thing to, to do. Now, as you know, you can do a trade from your phone. So things have changed incredibly. Um, I recall back in, you know, when, around when I first started, a very busy day on the Montreal Exchange would have been about 6 million shares traded across all names. Toronto was 30, 30 40, million. 40 was a crazy day. Um, Apple will probably trade 50 million today. So you mm. can see how the business has changed with speed, uh, putting trading capabilities in investors' hands. Um, it, the massive changes over the years were breathtaking really well, along with technology. But the fact that there's no longer a trading floor. Um, Can that be said about anywhere? Or is there still, because whenever you see the New York yeah. Stock Exchange, I mean, you still see some traders there that are that are physically present. Yeah. It, what's, I mean, I guess there's going to, there's going to be, that's not going to exist in a couple of years. Well, my view, uh, and probably shared by others, is that the New York Stock Exchange floor is effectively a museum. Um, yeah, the trading that's done there, you'll see traders walking around with an iPad doing electronic yes. trade. So it's electronic trading. It's mostly theatrics, in Got my it. opinion. Got they it. sort of don't want to let it go, yeah, yeah, which yeah. I get. It's pretty. I've been on the floor a couple yeah, of times. It's nostalgic. Back in the day. Yeah, it's nostalgic. Absolutely. Cool. Nostalgic's yeah. a good word yeah. for it. Yeah. Um, so, it, I mean, it's changed a lot. But working on a floor, uh, I'll take Montreal as an example. Um, you know, imagine a, a hockey rink, an arena with no ice. Um, and 400 people, male-dominated back in the day, with a locker room atmosphere, no holds barred, um, you know, mostly young, working together. What was I the mean, average age? Uh, there was the old... T probably shouldn't have done that, right? Done what? <laughs> oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. So we have to start over? <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I mean, there was there was a lot of young traders and there was a lot of old timers that had been there okay. forever. Um, you learned a lot from the older guys. Yeah, they were mostly willing to teach you lessons that hold hold till today. You know about discipline. Um, the reality of, of of trading is you can't tie the price of a security to the fundamentals directly. Mm. For example. Apple, let's just pick Apple as an example. If Apple has a val intrinsic value of $150 a share, why does it go from 125 to 175 over the course of a three month period? So the, would you say a lot of that is hype? Um, well, fear and greed drives markets. That's true. That's been, that's been said many times before. So when you, when you have human humans with, you know, the, the, the fear and greed factors driving the momentum one way or the other in a market, you learn to um, sort of 
evaluate the way things are trading based on how they're trading. I don't know how to put that into different words other than I saw a lot of smart people. To be honest with you, the smartest traders, the best traders on the floor were the ones who didn't finish high school mm. because they had survival instincts mm. and they had the desire to work hard to make money. Um, the ones who had a, you know, a graduate degree in economics usually didn't make it. Or perhaps too analytical. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to go... You have to go with the market. You have to go with the direction of the market, generally speaking, when you're trading or investing, like fighting the trend. The trend is a big thing in the business. If you're fighting the trend, it's like swimming against the current. Against the current. So yeah. uh, these are little things well, it's that like, you It's learn. like the, the saying, you know, don't fight the Fed. Yeah, yeah. So whatever there. That's debatable. I, I would. Oh, okay. This has okay. been a discussion that I we're, had. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get into a little bit, but I, wa yeah. I want to stay on this just okay. kind of on the trading for a little bit. Sure. Because... So whenever I think of a day trader, I think of Wolf of Wall Street. So yeah. I think from the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio depicting Jordan Belfort back in the day. He was early 90s, or late 80s. And then we talked a little bit on the phone before this. Did you, like when you were working, did you hear about this guy? I think, weren't you aware of him? Uh, I read the book well before okay, the movie Okay, read the book, got out. it, got yeah. it. So, but when you were working on the Montreal Stock Exchange, yeah. you didn't know who Jordan Belfort was. Like no, he didn't have knew, that I, much of a reputation. I knew several several like personalities. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. Do, yeah. You have, do you have any funny stories? You don't have to name names or anything like yeah. that. Because whenever I think about trading floors, I think about, you know, uh, people coming in super, super, super hungover. I think about, you know, drugs yeah. that are there. I think about prostitution. I literally just think everything yeah. that was depicted in the movie. I just think about that. Yeah. And, you know, you had mentioned, you go, I don't think it was to that extent, but not that far off. So do you have any uh, you're, any you're, cool stories you can you can tell us? Your, uh, your assessment is pretty accurate. You know, there was a lot of all of that uh, yeah. present in the industry. Um Everywhere, New York, Toronto, Montreal. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I saw uh, the funny side of, of working as a trader. I saw the dark side. I'm sure. Of it, um, which was uh, which is sad. I won't go down that uh, that route. But yeah. uh, like practical jokes, for example, were something that, you know, like, like I said, a, a locker room with 400 people in it. You had to be on your toes. And 95% men or probably yeah, more. Yeah. yeah. You had to be on your toes yeah. um, often. Um, because you could be the target of, uh, you know, stuff like a, a fake stock. Like I remember a fake stock, a new listing one day, and you would have one of the the, the clerks running orders back and forth. Like uh, one example I remember was buy 100,000 of ABC. So this trader's buying and calling in the reports and buying. And then after the order's almost complete, someone on the desk says, what do you mean buying? It's a sell order. And I've seen people like, you know, in that case, the, the girl <laughs> would kind of like broke down a little bit, you know, and then it's, I think it was her last day on the job. And then everybody goes around and gives her a standing ovation and we're just playing a trick on yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorites that's fairly clean was, um, I was somewhat a party to setting up this practical joke, but they, there was a, a restaurant, a club on the back end of the floor called the Montreal Exchange Club. Yeah. And so you could have a, have a drink after work or you could have lunch or dinner there, bring people from outside. Um, so they had... Uh, and so all, all the traders would go, that was the spot yeah, to go after them. work. Uh, yeah, so yeah, be honest. I mean, there was guys that had a, a quart of X open uh, right after the bell. Some of the older guys, you know, uh, nice. have a pint in the morning. Um, 
but this one case, we get lunch there quite often, right? So we just yeah. grab lunch there because you work through, there's no lunch in this business. You work through lunch. And I recall um, the restaurant club in the back had a promotion for Captain Highliner fish or something like that. And there yeah. was a contest to win a boat. So we arranged, so there was this one guy who was notorious uh, practical joker who's still in the business and may even hear this. I'll probably send it to him. Um, and he was stuffing the ballot box trying to win the boat. So we got the lady <laughs> who managed the restaurant to give us one of his tickets. Yeah. And we knew somebody, one of the guys on the floor had a buddy who owned a boat store in Cartierville. So we arranged to have this guy win a boat. Um, so it was hard to convince him. We had people from the outside calling, telling him you want a boat and trying to get him to the boat store. And so eventually he bought it and, uh, we arranged for him to go on a Friday night to get his boat and do promotional photos and so on and so forth. So, <laughs> okay. you know, eight of us showed up at the, uh, the boat store and we hid behind those big curtains that they have in the, where they keep the boats. And this guy came in. Okay, this is a big prank. This oh, is just was fantastic. Uh... <laughs> and then he, you know, he, he came into the store, it was February, so there, it was closed, and the owner was there, and uh, we had a photographer there, and, you know, can we get some pictures for promotion? Sure thing. We had brought a fishing rod and a net and a fishing hat, and he got up on his, and now by this time, it's not just, a, he didn't win a fishing boat, he won a cruiser. So he gets up on his cruiser with his fishing equipment, and he's all smiles. He's like, I can't believe I won this boat. And he's calling all his friends. And, and this would be the equivalent of what, a $100,000 boat today? Uh, yeah, something about like that. that. Nice okay. boat. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, after a bit, the curtain opens and we came out and we said, isn't this a great night for fishing? <laughs> and his face dropped. I mean, he just went from having this beautiful boat to nothing, to knowing that. The, and now he's embarrassed because you played a prank on The ungettable on got got, basically. Yeah. Um, so that's a clean one that was funny and... Uh, you know, I, I won't go into any of the ones that were a little more evil. Fair rude. enough. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. And for, would, would you ever see sometimes, you know, drugs during the day at work in the bathrooms and stuff like yeah. that? I, personally, no. I was never you involved. Didn't see in it. I never got involved in that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, allegedly people talk. Yeah. Um, I, knew, I knew one guy who lost everything, basically, mm. um, to a habit. He was working in New Cocaine York at the I, time. I'm guessing. I, uh, yeah. I think so. Yeah. I'm pretty certain. Okay. Um, you know, there was people, sadly, there was, I can think of uh, people that took their own lives. Oh, wow. People that went, you know, lost their jobs, lost their families, uh, alcoholism. Mm. Uh, it can be a very stressful industry, obviously. Yeah. Um, but it was something I tried to keep away from. I, I didn't get involved in it, but I'm pretty certain. Yeah. I mean, it's come just like anything else today in industries, what you see with a lot of, of, of day traders today, um, you'll see the banks or the institutions that they work under. It's, it's about health now. Cause if you don't have a clear mind when you're coming into work, you know, yeah. you, you, like you said earlier, you have to be on your toes when you're trading, you have to be, so if you're coming in and you're hungover and you got to bed at four in the morning and you're running on three hours of sleep, yeah. your brain is not going to be functioning at the same capacity as what it should be functioning at. Yeah. So, um, a lot of these companies now, from what I've from what I've heard, you probably know more than I do. They're actually taking it more seriously. Okay, how can we get or they'll, they'll look at things like your sleep. What are your sleeping patterns? And they'll actually work. Okay, how can we make your sleeping patterns better so you can be more focused 
at work. And if you're more focused at work, yes, it's going to benefit the company. But it's also, if you're sleeping better, it's going to benefit all parts of your life. For sure. For sure. So, uh, and, and I mean, companies today, uh, as far as I know, when they hire a new trader, uh, you know, you'll go through drug testing. Really? Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, these days they use artificial intelligence to look through your social media to find out yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, you're, who you're hanging with, huh. uh, what your views are on certain things. Um, and a friend of mine, actually, who worked with me on the Montreal floor and is now based in uh, on the West Coast, yeah. he recently got hired by a prominent New York firm. Yeah. And so he went through that. He went through that, uh, the whole testing regime to make sure. P-test, all that stuff too. Yeah. Huh. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, back in the day, uh, I went through the, uh, I forget what it's called, but, you know, they ask you 100 questions about uh, various things. So they try and get a score on your, I guess, your mental health or your views. Uh, personality test, I guess, is what yeah. it was called back in the day. Yeah. But for sure, you know, I think that especially the banks are sensitive to any reputational damage that might occur from somebody who doesn't act properly. When you think of the banks, I mean, I can't think of an institution that is more risk averse than a Canadian bank or an American bank, too. But Canadian yeah. banks, oh, my God, they're so risk averse. I understand why they are risk averse. It's yeah. just but oof, yeah, they're very, very, very risk averse. OK, I, I have another my last question here, just kind of like where we're talking about day traders. I don't fully understand how the day trader makes money, like how you would make money back then. And I guess today. So when you're trading all these stocks, can you explain to us how a trader actually makes money sure well it, it, um so what happened in my case I'll, I'll use myself as an example i worked as a professional trader for yep. uh 25 years yep uh nine years on the floor of the montreal exchange toronto and montreal merged in 99 and then i worked for the toronto stock exchange but from montreal okay. because it was virtually an electronic it was an electronic virtual exchange so yep. you didn't have to be present on the floor um it was a lot easier to you know, buy and sell. So you could buy something, uh, if, you know, if you think it's undervalued, you buy something, you hold on to it for 15 minutes or 15 days and you just try and make money. So buy, buy low, sell high or the inverse, right? Sell high, buy low, like shorting a stock and buying it back. Around the mid, let's say 20, by 20, 2012, 2010 to 2012, uh, algorithms uh, became a reality in the business. So the machines, quite frankly, made more money than day traders could. So at the time I was working for a firm as a professional trader, they closed the department in 2012. Uh, and then another one that I had worked for, both large Canadian financial institutions, I won't mention them, closed their trading rooms within a couple of months of each other and replaced the traders with uh, the market making algorithms. traders with algorithms, yeah. with machines. Hmm. You can't beat a machine. Uh, quite frankly, no, they no. don't they don't make mistakes that well, they can make mistakes. Let me let me take that back. But the law of average Rare. is in the aggregate. They're, they're going to beat you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're just they don't take a break. Yeah, they don't have emotions. They don't take vacation. They don't get tired. Um, they're always on the desk. Um, and I know for a fact, talking to people in that end of the business, that they made way more money using machines than they did with humans. Hmm. So that's right around the time when I decided to make the transition from being a trader to being a portfolio manager. Got it. Uh, at that time, around uh, well, 2014, around that time. This is a great segue. So right now you're working with Palos. And can you talk to us a bit about, because one of the things you said, I said, okay, you're in wealth management. You go, ah, we don't refer to it as wealth management. Yeah. I actually prefer to refer to it as, what's it referred to as? Uh, investment management investment or portfolio management. management. Um, I mean. Yeah, so so let, let's talk about kind of like what you're doing today yeah. in terms of 
you know, what, what, what's Bill doing today? Okay. Working at Palos. Okay. So, um, before becoming a portfolio manager, actually a discretionary portfolio manager, you have to get the educational requirements to receive that designation. So I, I, I was studying for this while I was uh, working as a trader, is the Chartered Investment Manager, des manager designation, the CIM, which allows me to manage portfolios on a discretionary basis. Which means I don't have to do it the old fashioned way where you call your client and say, hey Curtis, you know, I think you should buy 100 shares of Royal Bank. Yeah, Bill, sounds good, go ahead and do it. I manage using my discretion without having to uh, notify the client with every single trade that I want to that I want to make, or that I feel I should make, which has its efficiencies, obviously, uh, in terms of time, right? So mm -hmm. if, if something's happening in the market, I can I have the discretion to act without getting the client's on authorization. Of the clients, yeah. yeah, the clients sign off on this at the beginning yeah. that they agree to be managed on a discretionary basis. Yeah. Um, so that's the business that I wanted to get into. I didn't want to get into. Uh, a, a classic broker, you know, recommending stocks and, and all the disclosures and phone calls required with it. So my thinking was, if I could start a fund, which I have done, I did that in 2019, where clients are, are, are hold the assets of the fund. So in, in effect, it's like a mutual fund. It's a mutual fund by trust. So client money that's in the fund, I manage as if it's a, like a trading portfolio. Um, <clears throat> Longer term, not like trading where it's fast, yeah. right? So it's active, but there's a longer time horizon. Like I can hold a stock for three years. As long as it's performing well, I will hold a stock in the fund for three years. So you've gone from the day-to-day -day stuff to the long-term stuff. Exactly, exactly. So I have investors. Before, you know, as a trader, you have one client and that's the institution that you work for. So you answer to one person. Uh, once you are in this business, you answer to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one difference. But to me, you know, in my view, the skills that you that I acquired uh, through 25 years of working on the floor were a training ground for being a portfolio manager that just does not exist anywhere anymore. It just doesn't. So. And what would you say is the best skill that you learned over those 25 years um, or skill? Let's let's go top three. Yeah. Um, discipline, mm. uh, patience, uh, and risk management, uh, I guess would be the third. I mean, you learn. You and, often, and when you're saying discipline, so when you're yeah. saying, okay, I, I'm going to get rid of the stock at this price. If it hits this price, just being disciplined with your thoughts and trying to take emotion out of it as much as possible. Is that what you, when you say discipline, is that what you mean? That would be part of it. Okay. Uh, other parts of it would be don't get over your skis on a single name. So for instance, in the fund, I have a hard 5%. I don't want to hold anything with more than a 5% weight in the fund. The fund basically has 40 to 50 stocks in it, North yeah. American. Yeah. And, uh, you know, don't buy into the hype and have 10 or 20% of your fund in one stock. That never ends well. And you learn that as a trader. Whenever you get over over your skis on something, the market usually has a way of, of spanking you and making you pay, as we used to say, paying tuition. And so w would you say that you are a portfolio manager that focuses more on diversification or because just to play devil's advocate and before i get into this you know warren buffett always says there's many different ways to get to heaven it's not just one way yeah. and and so he always says he's a big advocate for investing in fewer companies and he goes well yeah. why would i invest in other companies if this company i'm going in right here goes i i, I understand this company like the back of my hand i'm going to keep investing in this yeah and he basically says that well you know what he says but for the viewers 
you know, investing diversification. He goes, there's nothing wrong with diversification, but diversification, a lot of times it's for people that don't fully understand the company. So yeah, just diversify, You're basically buying the index and over time it'll go up. Yeah. So what do you have to say to that, to someone like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger who go, we don't really play the diversif diversification game. We're more, we invest in the companies that we understand. Yeah. Concentration. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, Buffett's great. Uh, they really yeah, course, are. Yeah. Uh, there's great lessons to be learned uh, from uh, Buffett and Munger over the years. And They're really I, funny together too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Stuff. I keep a log of the best sayings in the business yeah. as far as discipline and trading rules. Or how much Charlie go. likes Costco. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Warren Buffett, I think, drinks like four Cokes a day or something. It's crazy. Is uh, he like 90? How is he? 94, 93? Uh, I'd be guessing. I think he's 86. And Munger's re retired now, basically. Munger, he's 90, 94. <sighs> yeah. Anyways, yeah. we're getting off topic, but that, that question. Yeah. Right, yeah. So this is my view. Everyone has their, their yep. way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, as you said, there's different ways to get to heaven. So my view is, you know, being overlaid over, like if I hold too many securities, you might as well own the index. Yeah, right. It exactly. doesn't make any sense. Exactly. So to me, there's a sweet spot. And that's that 40 to 50 different names in the fund, which is what I try to stick to. Got it. Um, and if you own an index, you know, you, you basically own across sectors unless you pick a specific sector. What I try to do is, you know, to use the Gretzky investing uh, um, style is go to where the pucks, head to where the pucks going. So to me, I would overexpose in a, in a sector that I think is going to perform well in the future because when you invest in equities, it's forward looking, right? You're, you're investing for six months, nine months, 12 months down the year, you're not investing for today. Mm -hmm. So you kind of think of where are we headed? Where can I get ahead of the game and buy now when prices are cheap? And then when everybody sort of jumps into that sector, you start offloading and move some money into another sector. That's one way that I do it. And you're diversified to a certain extent, but you're not diversified as one of those terms in the business that if you own too many names, you're, you're diversified. Um, also, well, it's, like, the, it's like you said, just buy the index at that point. You might as well. Yeah. 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 But I, I, I say I'm a firm believer. I, experience has taught me many times. I believe you're better off investing in individual names uh, and, and picking the names that you think are going to do better. Uh, and there, there's tools that you use to analyze this and select stocks. And I'd be happy to go through how I do it. But I mean, to me, that's active management going where the money is, avoiding where the money's not, because different sectors perform differently under different economic conditions, right? When interest rates go up, for example, utilities usually have a difficult time because they're interest rate sensitive. That's mm -hmm. just one example. Mm -hmm. uh, There's one guy, he said a really good line. I forget his name. He works in the tech sector and um, he goes, just because it's a good company, you, you can have a company, take a Google, you know, yeah. the Google prints money, yeah. a lot of profits, billions and billions and billions of dollars every single year in profits, well-run organization. And he goes, just because a company is a well-run company, doesn't mean it's a good stock to buy at this point in time. Exactly. And I thought, I went, huh, that's a really good point that he's making right now. Yeah, it's very valid. Um, you know, as, as I discussed before, stock prices move for various yeah. reasons. Often it's about, you know, uh, the retail crowd will buy something because it's hot. Um, last year, well, I mean, it's a bit crazy. The meme stocks from last year, 
where people yeah. were lined up to buy uh, Blackberry, uh, AMC theaters. Um, yeah. What was the other one? GameStop. Uh, GameStop. GameStop uh, was the big one. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, in my mind, it's irrational. Like it's of literally course, a game. Of course. Yeah. 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 It's, it, and it was. Yeah. So can, can you, can you explain that? So basically like for, for all, all I know, cause I'm not an expert on the shorts. All, all I know is the shorts basically you think a stock's going to go down the actual mechanics of it. You're yeah. going to be able to explain a lot better than I can. But so they had a bunch of people on a forum on Reddit that would talk to each other all the time. And basically they wanted, they knew that, a, that GameStop, it's just an, it's like HMV, you know, they sell physical games yeah. and everything's moving. Uh, everything's becoming digitized on Xbox or on PlayStation. I mean, you buy your games online, you download it. You don't go to the store to buy anymore. So everyone's like, Hey, we're going to short this. And there was a lot of shorts in the stock. Um, and basically, so I know it's a short squeeze, but what, what are the mechanics of that? Like these, these Reddit people, they, they performed a short squeeze. Yeah. Just, can you explain the yeah, mechanics? So uh, just to go quickly and try and uh, sort of explain it in layman's terms. I mean, there was a lot of liquidity, a lot of cash, right? With COVID there was free money everywhere. Yeah. Uh, you also had social media and I guess the younger generation today wants to do the right thing. And in their minds, it's like stick it to wall street type of thing. Right. Yeah. So, uh, I'm not sure. Maybe I'll just explain the mechanisms of, of shorting a stock. Sure. So, Normally you buy a stock, the price goes up, you sell it. Mm -hmm. uh, often as a trader, you can do the, the inverse, which is sell something you don't own, hope the price drops and then buy it back. So you can't sell something you don't own, right? So there's mechanisms built into the industry where, you know, most securities firms have what's called a lending desk. So the mechanics are, I would get approval from ABC securities or ABC bank, um, you know, send a call. Can I borrow? Uh, 10,000 shares of GameStop. Uh, yes, we do have that available available to lend. There's a charge for it. And the charge is related to the volatility of the stock and the availability of the stock. So sometimes if it's a stock that's already highly shorted, it's expensive to borrow that. Mm. But if you're, you know, if you have high conviction that the price is going to go down, it might be worth it. So if you imagine it makes no sense that GameStop is this high. So you get usually pro traders or pro trading desks that say, well, we're going to short this. So they start borrowing and shorting, right? Price keeps going up. So you borrow a bit more and short a bit more. Ultimately, you get to a point where there's no more inventory available on the street to borrow. So now if the buyers say, I want my stock back, like I want to sell my stock. So you have to return it. Now, the only way you can return something that you don't own is to buy it back. So you can see how that cascades into an upward move in the market. Mm. So that's why shorting can be dangerous. And in a way they did stick it to wall street because there was some firms that got too short and then you're buying back your short while everybody else is still buying. So it's like there's gasoline been thrown on the fire and you're kind of in a bit of a pickle, right? And, and what was the, so at the end of all this, at the end of all the situation, so they stopped trading of GameStop on that particular yes. share. Yeah. Who stopped the training? Uh, again, uh, I was, I was not involved in it. I can tell you that, yeah. um, but I did, I did follow it. Yeah. It was very entertaining. I think it was, um, with the trading app. What's the trading app that everybody was using back in uh, the free trading? Uh, uh, uh God. Oh God. I, uh, Sequoia has their finger, their hands in there. Yeah. I'm pretty sure in that company. Um, 
What's the the most popular trading one, Joey? Uh, there was both simple and no. Robinhood. Robinhood. Yes, Robinhood. Robin yes. Yeah, Thank, Robin you. Thank you, Joey. Yeah, Robinhood. So Joey always comes through. <laughs> tr trade from your phone, right? Yeah. Anytime you want. Uh, it's free. Yeah. First of all, nothing's free. But Robinhood, but it wasn't Robinhood. There was someone behind the picture that said, that was telling Robinhood, there's yeah. a company that has a really, really, really big stake in Robinhood that said, okay, we're going to stop this because they were getting, uh, to my understanding, they were getting screwed on the back end by this short squeeze. It, it could be. It could be because there's a, there's a limit. as to You can't short two times the float, right? Yes. Then you're really in, an, in yeah. a situation. Joey, when, can you look that up actually? Just ask... Um, Alameda, thank you. Yeah, who owns Robinhood? No, no, but the uh, the institution that has a big equity stake in it. Alameda. Alameda, really? Yeah. Well, Alameda is Bankman Freed. That was his trading organization. Yeah, it is related. Yeah. No, there's someone else. There's someone else. In there. Yeah. I feel like Google's not putting it yeah. in there. Anyways, uh, you know, Anyways, at the end of the day. Yeah. I, this was the controversy was I, I believe I believe I could be wrong. I believe the firm decided there might have been pressure from regulators as well. Yeah, this is getting out of hand. People are going to get hurt and they did get hurt. Effectively, it was a pyramid scheme, right? You keep yeah. driving the price up and you're buying because it's going up, which is never a good reason to buy something. And of course, at the end of the day, everything imploded and people did get hurt. Um, so if I look back on that, I thought it was a bit ridiculous to invest for out of principle to try and stick it to Wall Street. It's tough to stick it to Wall Street. Yeah. But that was sort of the... They also make the rules of the game. They have a lot yeah. of influence on the SEC. Yeah. You know, so... Yeah. Yes and no, I would say. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, well, I mean, the SEC, the regulators want the industry to, to succeed. Well, I mean, if I mean, but, let's just take. We just mentioned Alameda and yeah. uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. I mean, let's take a look at that. I mean, yeah. they did a pretty piss poor job on that regulating that guy. Well, it's unregulated. It's an unregulated Fair. industry. Fair. Yeah, based in the Bahamas. But Fair. he was yeah. uh, again allegedly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> allegedly, yeah. he was uh, borrowing from Alameda to finance crypto stuff. Which, again, if you're wrong, and you can't pay back Alameda you're kind of yeah. eventually, you know, the Bernie Madoff thing, if uh, that's yeah. going back in time, but yeah. it, it was, it was BS, you know, yeah. he was taking in money, issuing fake statements with how well you're doing. Yeah. But when the markets were unstable uh, and the great financial crisis and people got scared and said, I want my money back. If you don't have it, you don't have it. And yeah. then, you, then you, you know, you blow up. I think this is a good segue. I want to get into today's market. Let's start with the Fed yeah. and central banks. Yeah. What's going on? Uh, my opinion. Your opinion. Well, no, no um, one knows for sure what's going to go on. No, no one knows. No one knows. Sure. No one knows for sure. And I'm yeah. everyone's going. Okay, yeah, they're going to put interest rates up. It's going to go up to eight percent. I don't believe they can. You know, a lot more than I do. But at the end of the day, you know. There's a lot of factors to be taken into consideration. Yeah. Um, inflation rates, um, job numbers, unemployment rate. Yeah. There's all this stuff, political pressures, geopolitical pressures, conflict overseas. There's a lot of stuff that's thrown into the pile to base for the central banks to deal with. And it's like I, I said this last time on the podcast, there was a guy 
I don't know his name. I don't remember his name. And he was criticizing the the head of the central bank, so the head of the European Central Bank of Japan, of Canada, of the, the Fed, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And they go, okay, well, what would you do if you were the head of a central bank? He said, I'd resign. Yeah. <laughs> that's so right. we do have to be a little bit empathetic, I guess, to the situation that they're in. I don't think it's an easy position to have. I certainly, well, number one, I don't understand markets well enough, but even if I did, I don't think I'd like to be the head of a central bank um, in today's era. So can can you just offer your opinion on to what is going on right now? I know that's a very broad question, but this is a topic that we can talk about for a while. Uh, absolutely. I've got two days. I'll, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so in my view, uh, it, it goes back to uh, the pandemic, mm. right? Central banks realize that uh, people are staying home, not going to work offices or closed restaurants or closed. You have to stimulate the economy. So there was free money everywhere. They lowered interest rates to basically, in some places, negative, which again, yeah. is, it's hard to fathom how you can buy a German government bond and get less back in five years. I don't understand the rationale of that myself. But the there was liquidity injected into the market to save the economy. This created inflation. So the, we'll, we'll talk about the Fed in the States. Uh, so the Federal uh, Open Market Committee or the Fed um, realized that there was inflation, but they, they were adamant in sticking to their guns that it was transitory. It wasn't real. I'll talk to clients who own businesses. Um, I, I incessantly read all points, all signs pointed to the fact that it wasn't transitory, that inflation was sticky, yet they kept up with their easy monetary policies. There's a thing called the dot plot, which is they ask each governor on the committee to project where interest rates will be, let's say a year from now. Almost unanimously, they said, um, low rates are here to stay for a long time, (laughs) okay? Mm -hmm. A year later, those dot plots have gone up to four and a half, five, five and a half, maybe even six. So the thing has turned around. I question myself, number one, they screwed up in the first place. And I'm not the only person who has that view. So they've been super aggressive, more aggressive, I think, than ever in history in raising rates. I think 20 fold from uh, 25 beeps or a quarter of a percentage point uh, last March, so like a year. Um, Have they gone too far? Why are they doing this? Are they doing this for credibility reasons so that they can say we were right? I think there's part of that. I would agree. There's a lot of pushback. Yeah, I, Um, I would definitely agree. And, you know, what, what uh, I had this discussion actually with a strategist who was in town from uh, the States uh, a few weeks back. We were at a lunch and, um, you know, there's don't fight the Fed and there's don't fight the tape. So the tape being the markets, right? The, the ticker tape, it's don't fight the tape. Now the bond market's telling us they're done raising rates. As a matter of fact, they'll probably start cutting. Um, the Fed is saying no. We're going to stay higher for longer until we get inflation down to 2%. Uh, another question I asked myself. Infl- inflation right now. So they just released the inflation numbers in Canada. I believe it was 5.2. Um, year over year or something. I mean, uh, honestly, I don't I don't follow that on a... But it's, it's over 5. Uh, oh, let's call yeah. it about 5. And I think it's, sure. about sa- it's about the same in the U.S. right now, I believe. Yeah, the, the, the PCE, uh, uh, which is a measure of inflation this morning, was a little better in terms of inflation going down than was expected. Um, But uh, the signs are everywhere, really, that inflation is going to go down. I mean, energy prices have plummeted. 
despite the war in, in, in uh, despite Russia, you know, uh, being banned from selling supposedly on the world markets, uh, other commodities have gone <laughs> down. Real estate is soft yeah, uh, and could get softer. Um, so you're talking globally. Uh, yes, but also mostly North America. I mean, in the States, you know, um, well, energy prices are global. Yeah, pretty much. But things like real estate uh, and, and employment numbers, employment's still strong. I'll give them that. But is there a reason? I ask myself, is there a reason why inflation, why um, employment numbers are so strong? Has something changed? And again, this is kind of my own thinking or, or chatting with my, uh, my peers. Uh, does the gig economy have something to do with it? Like more people are self-employed or working in the gig economy. They might not be reported properly. Uh, people that stop looking for jobs are no longer in the workforce. All of these things come together to maybe change employment numbers. And the other thing that kind of bothers me is under normal circumstances, we've got too many unemployed people and the economy's too slow and the Fed's trying to make things better using monetary policy. Now everything's super rosy and they're trying to throw water on the fire, which I understand. Um, they want to get inflation to 2%. I wonder, why are you fixed on two? What's wrong with three? And what's wrong with taking a year to get there? Because they keep jamming on the brakes by raising rates. And, you know, there's a belief in the business that the Fed will keep doing that until something breaks, something broke with yes. the banks, right? Yes. So something's broken. Um, do you think there's more? Uh, hmm, where do we take this? I still want to stick on the Fed. So, yeah. so right now, you think that they, they put rates up too quickly. Yeah. Um, last week, I believe they put it up another 25. Uh, the Powell put it up another 25 yes. basis points. Yeah. Why do you think they put up rates too quickly? I'm in the camp that inflation is a inflation can be very, very, very dangerous. And it's not going to hurt the people it, who it ends up hurting the most is just the, the middle class. The yeah. poor people are poor. They don't own any assets. The rich people have the assets. So with inflation, there's going to be asset inflation that goes along with that as well. They're it's not good for in my opinion. It's not too much inflation isn't good for anyone. But they're going to be fine. They own assets. The middle class, the people that don't own assets, especially people my age that don't own homes, they have literally nothing. And if, if there's a 5% or a 10% inflation, that's effectively your dollar will pur purchase 10% less than what it did a year before. That is a tax if you want to look at it that way. And so the gap, I mean, if, if we just look at since 2008 or over the past 20 years, since 2008, I mean, they've been saying they're they're going to shrink. The central banks have been saying they're going to shrink the balance sheet since 2008, and they have not. I don't think they can. And so there's a lot of moving parts here. I, I, I'm in the camp, basically, long story short, I'm in the camp that raising the interest rates like this is good because we need to fight inflation because in the long run, the inflation is going to be a lot worse for, for in particular, the middle class. That's my opinion. Yeah, I, it, it's a valid point. Undoubtedly, but as you said, there's a lot of moving parts. Yes. Um, if they do too much damage to the economy and they cause a severe recession, then I mean, you can still. But isn't maybe, that isn't that part of an of a normal cycle though? Because I mean, we haven't had a really a real recession since 2008. Yeah. And so they just keep the Fed keeping rates where they were. I know we had COVID, but they you know, there's that reference. It's like putting a bandaid on. They just keep putting a bandaid, a bandaid, a bandaid. Yeah. And they have artificially low interest rates that cause damage. I mean, you, 
you can say that they raised rates too quickly. You could also definitely say there's an argument to me that they kept rates too low for too long. So there's like... That's true. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a widely held opinion. Yeah. They, they stayed low for too long. Um, I mean, there's a downside to raising rates too. When people start losing their homes and losing their jobs. I mean, maybe with inflation, you're not eating uh, steaks, you're eating hamburgers. Yeah. If you have no job, you might be eating macaroni. So, I mean, you know, there, there's many moving parts to it. I think a lot of um, opinion in the business will be why are they super focused on two? Like, let's go towards two. But to be so aggressive to try to get to two as fast as you can doesn't make any sense, right? The, the Fed in the States has two mandates, uh, inflation mm -hmm. and uh, employment. That's really the two things that they're supposed to focus on. At some point, you know, if they keep raising rates and the economy gets severely hurt and people start losing jobs, which they are, it's already, you see yes. the layoffs in, in yep. Silicon yep. Valley. Of course, yeah. Um, you know, what's worse? I don't know, because once that once that cruise liner starts moving in one direction, it's, you just don't turn it around. No, it's it a it great, takes it's, time. It's a great question. And also it throws in politics. So Paul, no politician is going to. It, it's one thing to say, I'll let fundamentals take over, let rates go back to where they should be. I mean, OK, you want to see what that's going to look like. Yeah. So you got the Fed trying to play all this. Also, politically, it's impossible. I don't want to say next to impossible. It's literally impossible. Yeah. You cannot just one day come in and go up. Um, the inflation rates at eight percent, and let's put rates to nine percent. You'll break the whole system. Yeah. So it's it's that'll never happen. Which is you know just uh, again another lesson in life that you learn from trading is when you say it will never happen. Sometimes it happens. Fair That's enough. just a lesson that I learned Fair about enough. trading. You know that can never Fair happen. Yeah. It happens. Um, yeah, I mean nobody knows uh, yeah, where we're yep. headed, mm -hmm. um, but there's an argument going on right now between the bond market and the Fed. Yes, they're going in opposite directions. Um, I was at a conference yesterday where I was listening to one of the best economists in the country, in my opinion, and he's of the view that, well, Bank of Canada stopped, right? They've already yep. paused uh, two in a row. Mm -hmm. um, they might be the world leaders, but a lot of signs are pointing to rates will likely pause, the Fed will pause, and then maybe sometime in 2024 start to cut when all of the higher rates starts to you know, do damage to the economy. Work its way through the work system. Work its way through the system. Yeah. Um, but it remains to be seen. And again, just, I don't want to harp on the Fed. Yeah. But as I said, the dot plots, which project interest rates, let's say a year from now, last year they were saying, no, rates are going to stay lower for longer. How wrong were they? They were very, very wrong. Because now the dot plots are saying, almost unanimously, and this is the thing too, right? The the commentary that comes with the f the decision on rates. There's always, uh, you know, uh, uh, Powell, the, the chair of the Fed, speaks, um, and then various regional governors from the Fed will also speak locally. Um, that has an impact as well. When they say we're staying with higher rates for longer till we win the inflation battle, if you look at economic signs, they're winning the economic, the inflation battle, mm -hmm. sorry, uh, not only in my opinion, but in a lot of smart people's opinion, they seem to be ignoring that. They keep, we're data dependent, we're data dependent. They kept saying that. But sometimes you have to just use your head and, and see what's happening out there. You know, if I look out the window and it's raining and you say, it's not raining, it's not raining, or, or my Weather Channel app says it's not raining. I mean, Curtis, it's raining. Um, Inflation is going down. 
the, the signs are everywhere, but they seem to be stuck on, we really want to nail this and uh, there's no flexibility. We're staying higher for longer. So we'll see who wins, yep. the, the Fed or the tape, who's right. We don't know. Yeah. I would side with the tape. So these interest rate increases, there's a podcast I listen to all of the time called The Looney Hour. They're fantastic. I think they give a really good simplified version of what's going on in the economy. These interest rate increases, and they've been saying, what's his name? Keith Dickard. I always pronounce his last name wrong. Of Ice Cap Management. And um, he's a funny guy to listen to. Never met him, but I see him on his podcast. And he's been saying for about a year and a half or a year, year and a half, the Fed doing this, it's going to break something. And he's not saying don't do it. He's just saying this is what's going to happen. The Fed's going to break something. What's going to break and when is it going to break? I'm not sure. And then we just had the Silicon Valley, Valley Bank debacle. Credit Suisse, which you can argue is more of just, it was a shitty bank that was poorly managed. And then you had the other bank, Signature Bank, I believe was the name of it. So these, this is a very interesting topic. The Fed has been raising interest rates. Stuff is starting to break. Can you just give us a layman's terms version, a Cribs Notes version of what recently happened and why there's a little bit of panic going on in the system right now? Sure. Um, People are worried it's going to spread other to other places. And they're completely valid. I think those are valid. Um, I, I think it's completely valid to worry about where the hell this is going. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, back to fear and greed. Yes. Fear, fear being one of the uh, the main drivers of, uh, of markets. Um, I'll start with uh, those, the specific banks that failed. Um, there's really three, maybe four reasons why they failed and why it was specific to those banks and not the system in itself. Number one was um, the bank can blame themselves because the way the banking system works is you bring in depositors money you invest it in liquid securities, safe securities, so you get a return on the deposits, right? The deposits aren't left in the vault. The bank invests them. They also lend um, to make to make money on the money that depositors have put in the bank. The mistake that uh, Silicon Valley Bank made was they invested for longer duration. So interest rates move counter to the value of a bond, right? When interest rates go up, the face value of a bond goes down and vice versa. So imagine if they bought, you know, their portfolio was mostly fixed income or bonds that were three, four or five years till maturity with interest rates going up so fast, they might've gone from, you know, a hundred cents on the dollar to 60 cents on the dollar. So that was a mistake in risk management. And from what I understand, that position was vacant at SVB for the last yeah I heard months. this I heard the same it's crazy that's insane yeah so yeah that would go to part two which to me yeah. the regulators were asleep at the wheel yeah. right because they didn't pick up on this so a run on the banks which is traditionally uh I think of the movie it's a wonderful life which I watch every Christmas was the run on the the Bailey family bank where everybody shows up at the door wanting their money because the rumors out around town that Uncle Billy lost $8,000 and the bank's on the verge of being closed by the regulators. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, but I it's, it's a great Christmas movie. Watch, <laughs> it with the, watch it with my the kids, the whole family every Christmas. Okay. Um, so, you know, that was the old fashioned run on the bank, the panic of 1907. I like reading about market history and stuff. But think about today, everybody banks with their phone. News travels at lightning speed. So with SVB, 
once there was a realization, they were actually going to raise capital to, to make their balance sheet better. Uh, they didn't quite get there. In a matter of like 24 hours, um, social media, even, even uh, people in Silicon Valley were telling their, their friends and their peers, the get your money out. The networks in Silicon Valley, yeah. Get your money out yeah. now, right? So everybody yeah. rushed to get the money out of the bank. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, like I said, you don't keep the money in a vault. Mm. Uh, you have enough to refund people when they want their money. So if everybody wants their money back, which they have a right to do, the bank says, well, we have to sell the securities that we've invested in. Now, those are bonds that were worth 100 cents on the dollar, just as an example. Now they're worth 60, but they have to sell them. Mm -hmm. So they're selling them at a loss. Because they need the liquidity to pay back the, the depositors that want their money. They need the cash. Yeah. So this cascades into where you're going to lose a ton of money because you're selling stuff for 60 cents on the dollar. They would have been okay if they could have held those till maturity. Much, yeah. Their maturity was too far down the road. That was Got a it. risk management mistake. Yeah. Um, so there was, there was the social media. But is it, okay, itself. let me just ask you this question. Yeah. Is it a risk management mistake when at the time that this happened, if I'm going to guess, it was when the central banks were saying interest rates are going to be low for a very long time. You know, one could yeah. argue that too. And like, if you're the, you know, if you're the bank SVB, you're going to say, well, guys, like here's the video. There's videos of Tiff Macklin saying the same thing and Fed Powell saying the same thing when we hit and yeah. they're like, Hey, rates are going to be low for a long time. So I'm going to give a, cut them a little bit of slack. You know, uh, you're, you're, you're right in the sense that yes, was there uh, the risk management position or whatever it's called that yeah. was vacant for eight months. I think it was six or eight months or something. Like yeah. That. Um, so yeah, that's 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 not right. But well, you're you're. I'm just playing devil's advocate. No, I, I understand. I, no, listen. Um, at the end of the day, you're accountable for your own risk management decisions. Yep. A, a really good bankers would have understood. Why are we reaching for that extra yield, right? Like you, you have to be safe and liquid, which is why you go short term in government securities at a bank. Because what's the shortest you can get for uh, uh, government security? Uh, fixed income isn't my forte, but I'd like. It's a year. Probably a month. A month, okay. three months, wow. yeah, a year, yeah. okay. you know, treasury bills and things like that, okay. uh, that are backed by the U S government. So there's virtually no risk. Um, but you start reaching for called reaching for yield. So you'll take more risk to get more yield on the deposits that you are, you have from yeah. your customers, but like yeah. a run on the bank normally takes time. It's people talking in the old, you know, back in the days of the movie or 1907, it takes a long time for people to converse and tell each other or phone each other and say, there's a run on the bank. This happened where you could just withdraw your money from a bank using your phone at any time. So why right now are we talking about banks guaranteeing everyone's deposits? This has started to circulate its way around the financial media. Yeah. And people are saying, no, 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 for sure. There's ways that we can guarantee all the deposits. What's, can you speak to about kind of what, what's happening right now? Cause people are, regulators are worried. Depositors are getting worried. Where is this going to spread next? If it's going to spread next, no one knows for sure. I think it will spread somewhere else next. And people are worried that their money just isn't going to be in the bank. What's going on with that? It's precisely to stop people from taking their money out of the bank and causing a liquidity crisis in the banking system. But to guarantee, I, I get, sorry, this wire keeps getting in my way. All right. Whew. 
got that out of the way. Okay, but to guarantee the deposits, what are the mechanics behind that? Because you can't just poof. Okay, yeah, everyone, don't worry, your, your money is guaranteed. Yeah. How how do how does the government, how does the central bank or the government? I don't know who's guaranteeing the deposits. How how are these deposits guaranteed? Okay, my understanding. Yes, it, it, I'm not an expert. Yeah. Uh, it it's not taxpayer money. Uh, banks pay fees over time into the deposit insurance corporation, like the FDIC. Yes, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. To to have money for such emergencies. Also knowing, it is a crisis of confidence, not a true crisis. Like it's specific to SVB that messed up mm -hmm. with their risk. And Signature Bank, I think, was crypto related. Mm -hmm. uh, what we have seen happening is all of that money that's come out of the, keep in mind, there's something like 4,200 banks in the States. We have six yeah. chartered banks and yeah. probably 35 in total. Yeah. A lot of regional banks in the states, a lot of city banks, county banks um, that all have an important role to play. But you're taking the money out of those institutions and people are putting their money into J.B. Morgan, Citibank, Bank of America because they're too big to fail. Mm -hmm. So people freak out. They mm -hmm. just want to make sure their money's safe. Like let's say, for example, um, a shoe factory on the other side of town closes down because of economic reasons. We don't freak out and go and buy shoes because there's going to be a shortage of shoes. When you're talking about your money and banking, it's shoot first, ask questions later. Like get my money out of there. Mm. There were stories about people, you know, withdrawing $100,000 in cash and keeping it under their mattress. Mm. That's the fear of a banking crisis. Uh, I think it's unwarranted. The money hasn't disappeared. It's moved from the smaller banks to the larger banks. Uh, and some of it has gone into short-term securities, like people are buying short-term stuff, government, U.S. government securities. So there's been a massive uh, switch or a flow from the smaller banks to the bigger banks and into government securities. So the money hasn't disappeared, disappeared per se. Uh, but this is dangerous because the smaller banks are often the lenders to the community, to businesses in the community. And Just to put it into perspective for the viewers, it would basically be like me. So we're, we're 35 employees. So yeah. from my understanding, SVB Bank was a bank for companies, tech companies in California between 20 and 100 employees. Yes. And so, for example, not only would you do like investing through, oh, sorry, they were just a bank. So it's like, let's say you need to go pay your employees. Well, for us, we bank with National Bank. We would take the money from National Bank. We give it off to our employees. So think about if you're a company or you're an employee coming to work one day, your company's not, not done nothing wrong and they actually, they're having a profitable year and poof, the money isn't in the bank anymore. Yeah. So had the Fed not did what they did, a lot of people would, have been, would not have been paid and a lot of companies would have gone under for, for stuff that they didn't do. Correct. That's the way I understand it as well. Yeah. Not only pay employees, but you know, pay the rent. Uh, pay, pay, pay. Yeah. Your, well, the money just wasn't there. Pay your suppliers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so that's part of the problem. Part of the problem with the Silicon Valley bank, again, from what I understand, it, it was really catered to Silicon Valley. Yeah. And part of the uh, relationship was, you know, we'll give you a sweet deal on certain banking uh, services or banking relationships, but you have to keep your money here. And nobody ever thought in a million years that a bank would fail. Uh, but then again, we're back to it could never happen. 
it happened very, very quickly. So that was part of the problem too. But at the end of the day, right, what would you do if you had to pay your employees and the bank you're using is saying, well, Curtis, we don't have the money right now for you to pay your employees. You're going to say, well, see ya. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I'm out of here. Of so course, the government, yeah. it wasn't so much a government. Well, I guess it was the government in a way, but it's not taxpayer money. It's going to be probably repaid. There'll be higher banking fees that will go to the FDIC right down the road. But, but here's the thing. So FDIC, it's, it's to my understanding, it's like insurance. I work in insurance. So yeah. I have a good understanding of, insur of insurance and I know you do too. Insurance is, so let's say for example, if the house is worth a million dollars, you might pay a thousand dollars. So you're not paying this FDIC or whatever it is in Canada. Was it in Canada, CDC? Yeah, CDIC. A CDIC? Yeah. This premium is still not going to cover all of the deposits. And here's another example for in the US, the FDIC, they're only going to cover up to $250,000. So if you're a big company and you have $10 million in there, this FDIC doesn't, there's not enough money in the, within the FDIC to go pay off for all the deposits. The point I'm just trying to allude to, the point I'm just trying to make is that if the government is going to shift, the central bank is going to shift to guaranteeing all the deposits, there's not enough money in the system to guarantee these deposits from the coming from the FDIC, the insurance premiums. Yeah. Where's this money going to come from if they if they guarantee the deposits? So that's where that's where the government uh, has backstopped it, right? So let's go back to the bonds that went from 100 cents on the dollar to 60 cents on yeah. the dollar. Yeah. If you wait three years, they're back to 100 cents on yes. the dollar. Yes. So in the interim, I think what's happened uh, again. I'm not an expert, and I'm not 100 percent sure, but I believe this to be what happened: is the government said, "We'll take those bonds." I face value. We'll pay you 100 cents yeah. on the dollar now. Yeah. We'll wait three years. We'll get our money back. That's it. Right? Nobody really gets hurt. They're just guaranteeing that the bonds that these that the bank supposedly had in a secure spot that got crushed with higher rates because the face value of the bonds went down and they had to sell them to pay the people who wanted their money. The government's now said those bonds, in our view, are worth 100 cents on the dollar and we'll just keep them to maturity and get a hundred cents on the dollar. The money hasn't gone away. It's the price of the underlying yeah, bonds, no. right? Have gone down so much. And if you have to sell them, you're selling them at a huge loss today. At maturity, they're going to be worth a hundred cents on the dollar. But what does that do to the market? Well, there's been a lot of chatter. You know what I mean? About the death of capitalism. Um, you know, we went through this in 07, 08, right? Let them yeah. fail. And, but I feel like, again, it wasn't, you could, you could argue that. So the big banks like JP Morgan, um, who are the other ones? And it doesn't uh, even matter. But J City J Bank, Bank yeah. of America, JP Morgan. Yeah, Bank of America is uh, a big Wells one. Yeah. yeah. Like these guys, they're big. Yes. They're extremely, extremely well capitalized. They're going to, they're going to be just fine right now. Yeah. It's, they're looking good, but it still comes to, I guess here's another question that I have. So it's like the, the loony hour Keith Dickard. And he said, um, are you familiar with Ray Dalio's kind of theory? Just the cycles of long-term long-term debt cycles, the fall of superpowers in the world. So if yes. you look at the the British um, from back in the um, pre World War II, so they overextend. They have the biggest army in the world, and then basically the currency so it goes up and up. And then over time, the currency devalues through inflation from basically printing because they have to overextend themselves to pay for just stuff. The U.S. right now, I mean, there's no doubt you. you the U.S. is printing. Everyone's printing right now, but the U.S. is doing the exact same thing right now. So Keith Dickard, what he was saying is 
were at the end of an 80-year long-term debt cycle, so after World War II, where they remade the rules of the game. Yeah. And he said, this is how it goes. So right now, the fact that the central banks and the governments are guaranteeing the deposits, what this does is it shifts the risk away from the commercial banks to sovereign debt. That was his statement. Do you have any comment on that statement there? Uh, honestly, a bit over my head. I've read, <laughs> I've read Ray Dalio's books. Yeah. Uh, I've read a bit about modern monetary theory where, you know. It, I don't it, understand it. It seems like a, it seems like a, it's, it's a conversation over a couple of beers. Like, yeah. where are we going with debt? Right? Like, where are we going? There's so much debt out there, government debt. Will it ever be paid back? And I don't think it can. And I think yeah. it's just this is at the point where we are just going to monetize because they keep trying to fight inflation through higher interest rates. And to your point, and the markets are pointing to this as well, I think rates are just going to come zip right back down. And we're just going to inflate away this debt over time, which just devalues the currency. And, and it's just the natural evolution. And a country like China or the alliances that are going on with China are going to be the next people to come up. But then again, I'm thinking in my head going, well, hold on. They have a lot of debt, too. So who, where is this going to, yeah. uh, you know, so. It's kind of that mind exploding stuff, right? Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's like looking. It out, it's like nobody it's, knows. It's like looking into this space sometimes and yeah. just staring at the stars and going holy yeah. shit these <laughs> these things are a million light years away from me what the hell yeah uh it's, it's i mean it's great stuff for discussion yeah um I, well honestly, let's let's let, let's go there like what what do you think because you look at stuff you know you look at the fundamentals you go interest rates this institution or this computer is telling me rates are going to go up okay rates are going to go up i'm going to trade based on what this computer is telling me and 90 percent of the time it's correct yeah. So, but the, from let's, let's focus on the macro side of things. What, what do you really think is going to go on with central banks? Cause they have a lot of influence on, on how the world operates itself. And people don't even realize this. That's like one of the, one of my theories on why there's such a big gap between the rich and the poor today is nothing to do with, yes, you can argue it has a little bit to do with capitalism, but just over time, this is just the natural evolution of people. There's going to be a gap between this is just what happens, whether it's socialism, communism, communism, people argue all the time. Oh, it's everyone's equal. It's like, no, it's not. The government are the people who make call the shots. And then you have everyone else. So there's always a group at the top uh, for capitalism. You can say it's the institutions, the corporations, stuff that call the shots. So this this I think they're just this inflation monetization over time is is the biggest factor to why there's such a big gap between the rich and the poor. That's my opinion. It could be completely wrong, but. You know, a lot of people my age right now, there's, they'll never own a home in Canada. Yeah. Never. So, like, what do we do? There's never. too much debt in the system. What the hell do we do? <laughs> never say never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Things change. Uh, you know, policy can change. Um, markets could change. I mean, I don't want to get into the whole super macro thing, but eventually baby boomers will sell their homes and move into old folks' homes, and there'll probably be an abundance of supply on the market. That's just one thing that, off the top of my head, that could happen demographically. Then again, you know, immigration, particularly in Canada, uh, is much higher than it is in the in the rest of the G7 yeah. by far. Crazy. Um, we had over a million people, one million yeah. fifty thousand uh, last year. I was at the conference I was at yesterday. This was brought up. Uh, we had a million. The U.S. had one point five million for a country that's ten times larger. Ten x, yeah. Italy and I believe Germany had a drawdown, like negative immigration. This is supportive of 
the Canadian financial system and the Canadian economy because they will put their money in the banks. Mm-hmm. So the Canadian banks have far outperformed or underperformed far less than world banks, mm-hmm. uh, which is good. Again, our banking system is quite frankly regarded as the best in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's things in Canada that are different than the U.S. Uh, getting a bit off topic there, but I'm just thinking about what I learned yesterday and also about the banking system in Canada uh, has a much higher risk in residential um, residential mortgage exposure than the states. The states, it's commercial, like 40% exposure to commercial which is plummeting. I mean, yeah, it's the, a mess. the after I mean, COVID uh, empty office San Francisco space. is a mess yeah. right now. And for they were talking about that on the All In podcast, David Sachs, and he was saying that the there's $400 billion of debt that has to renew this year, another five in commercial real estate, another $500 billion has to renew next year. Yeah. And the tenants, so c- companies like me, tech companies, are not renewing their leases for a whole array of different reasons. Yeah. So... What's how do you determine the value of that building? And the next thing that happens is basically these. So if the banks have to come and take over the buildings and no one's paying the rent, the city of San Francisco loses their tax base. So it's like of this vicious cycle that that city, from what I'm seeing, oh, man, it looked they're in a lot of trouble. San Francisco. Well, a friend of mine, as I mentioned before, I worked with on the the floor in Montreal. Him and his wife moved to San Francisco 30 years ago. He's he's an options trader. And just the city itself. Uh, he lives in the city. I mean, I don't want to get off onto another subject, but I guess I will. I've gone that way now. But That's, uh, this is the podcast, man. You <laughs> can't park your car in downtown San Francisco Jeez, and go to a restaurant. That, that bad. Huh? You leave your windows open, believe it or not. If your windows are up, it's like a smash and grab. It's like almost guaranteed that someone's going to smash your window and take something. Sad. There's a name for it, uh, white ice or something, or white yeah. snow, or I don't know what it's called, but like the... The remnants of a smashed window, right? It breaks down into small pieces. Yeah. Um, that homelessness. Uh, I mean, San Francisco. I, well, I that's the other I thing. I've been there in a while, but it's. I heard. I, I wouldn't go there right no, now. No. I wouldn't. There's no point in going there. I had. There's. I ran into one of my friends at the airport about a year ago, six months ago, and she was here. So she had been living in LA for a while, and she came back here. She lives here now, and uh, I go, oh, uh, why'd you leave LA? Uh, well, this reason that it wasn't just this, but she goes, it's also not safe at all in LA. Yeah. I go, how so? She goes, you got to be really careful. And she's a girl. She goes, I-, I can't go out by myself after like nine o'clock. I can't go to these particular places. Like what you said, you have to worry about your car getting stolen. And you'll walk into some stores sometimes. And because they raise the, I think anything under like $1,000 if you steal is not criminal. So you got people just coming in and literally just grabbing stuff and walking out of the store. It's, my friend's been mugged twice. Jeez. Going to work. So if you're a trader in San Francisco, you, yeah. see, you know the market's open at six thirty in the morning. Yeah. So he goes to work, you know, five five thirty in the morning, and he he was walking to the exchange, the options exchange in San Francisco. This happened to him twice. He's just walking down the street on his way to Someone work. And some guy's running by, jogging, and punches him in the face, <laughs> <laughs> trying to rob him. You know, it That's happens. Crazy. Part of living there. That's kind of the risk. Yeah. Let's get into this. Where do you think? Another loaded question that no one knows for sure. Where do you think markets are going? Over the next five years? That's a long term for me. Three years. Well, traditionally, markets go, equity markets go higher over time. Always well, have. Okay, one year. Uh, one year? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'll tell you, honestly, I, I don't like making calls. My management style is one where you have to make a call. So I can tell you right now, I'm very bullish. I don't mind saying that. Really? You're bullish? Uh, yes. Why? Very, uh, very bullish, which, mm. which scares me. 
it scares me because if you're if you buy into your own conviction sometimes you're too biased mm. but i'm also i also manage risk through options markets and stuff which i won't get into right now but um let's just look at it this way we went through a terrible year in 2022 it was awful it was the worst year in my fund by far. I'll ask you for the mic again. Yeah. Yeah. You just move over that. There you go. Okay. Beautiful. So beautiful. Good. So perfect. Um, yeah. Yeah. So last year was a terrible year, right? In markets, yep. uh, the worst in four decades, mm -hmm. stocks and bonds went down significantly, which usually doesn't happen. The bonds related to the interest rate, uh, uh, change in rates. Um, so markets don't stay low forever. They fluctuate, they go up and down. Markets are also forward looking. Right. What's happening in markets today is probably what's going to happen in the economy six to nine months down the road. So with 2022 being so bad, it was projecting basically what has happened. Um, so at a point, if you're investing, looking at the future, um, the time to buy is when everything is negative. Right. As Warren Buffett would, would has said on record as one of his, his best in my mind is um, you should be. Uh, one is, is you want to buy when there's blood in the streets, which is pretty gory. And the other one is um, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And there's, there's a truth, truth to that. Mm -hmm. Right now, the numbers that we look at, and we're, we're active managers, we're, we're equity market geeks. Um, I mean, we're on this all the time. Like it's just, uh, we love what we do. In my view, the negativity uh, from the supposed experts that you see on television or in the press, in the media, podcasts, whatever. The amount of people that have gone into cash instruments because they're afraid of equities. Um, sentiment indicators, you know, there, there's companies that do research and they'll ask money managers, what's your intention to own equities over the next three months? They're like the lowest ever. So numbers like that are telling me that everybody's on one side of the boat. Everybody's negative. The news feed is Tell me something good that's happening right now in the world. Really, is there much? Earnings were okay. Uh, they haven't been uh, beaten up like some have projected. But we have a war in Europe that doesn't look like it's going to come to an end. Uh, energy crisis, global warming, uh, interest rates, inflation. Um, there's a lot of negativity, uh, you know, turmoil in the relationships with China. It goes on and on. Yet the markets have been resilient. So I was talking to somebody about this recently and I explained it like, I know when I was a kid, you had these like inflatable snowmen with the sand in the bottom and every time you punched it, it popped back up. This is the way I view the equity markets right now is they are super resilient, which tells me there's what we would call in you know investment terms, an underlying bid in the market. In other words, when prices go down, somebody's willing to, to add. There's also a potential catalyst I see is that the number of money managers, like pension fund managers, mutual fund managers, hedge funds, that are in cash, okay? You can't sit in cash forever. No. What's the point of managing? Especially with inflation at what it is today. Exactly. So one of the realities uh, is that uh, quarter end is today, actually. Um, so a lot of numbers will come out at quarter end. Um, if your portfolio that you're managing or your, your fund, your, you know, pension fund you're managing is, let's just say, it doesn't have to be today, it could be any time, right? Let's say you are 20% cash and the market went up 20% in the quarter, you got some splaining to do. Like, why were you so wrong? So sometimes what you'll see is money flow into equities because 
managers that usually are compensated with some sort of bonus at the end of the year based on performance, you can't diverge too far from the flock, right? So right now everybody's in cash and, and there's rationale for it and you sound smart, but using, you know, my conviction that markets are always forward looking. Equity markets are very strong right now and you have to buy when people are not buying to benefit in the long term. You have to be the Wayne Gretzky investor and you're ahead of the curve. And that's where I think we are now. And I think the bottom was put in in October in the US. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to be right. That's what I think. And as an, an active manager, I could change my view tomorrow or Monday morning, yeah. which is, again, one of the great things about active management. I'm not buy and hold by any means. We we tactically move around what's happening in the markets. But I'm I'm bullish. Uh, it, it's it's been a great quarter for the fund I managed, to be honest with you, outperformed by a lot. Um, so the signs are there. The signs are there. If you look at, uh, I could, you know, go into s some specifics like semiconductors, for instance, uh, NVIDIA, which is a stock that some people might know, uh, you know, the gaming chips and artificial intelligence, the stock is up, I don't know, 80% since uh, the end of the year because their chips are going to be in demand. So that's a bull market. When your stock is up 80%, now mind you, it went down a lot last year, but things move. You want to get in when things are terrible. Again, just to talk a bit about uh, history, like I know in the fund, a stock I generally would not invest in is Tesla because I don't have a lot of confidence in the, the, uh, the way Musk makes comments off the cuff. Um, but I did buy stock and call options on Tesla on January 3rd. That was like a double in six weeks. I mean, that's probably one of the best trades that I've made in a while because it's not just managing investing, it's also trading, right? There's, there is a trading element to it where you're trying to capture outperformance by doing things like that. So the tech sector that got beaten up last year has performed extremely well. The big companies, right? The the ones that make money, have a strong balance sheet, are dominant in their industry, have done phenomenally well. And yet, you rarely hear about it. Mm. You rarely hear about it. There's still negativity anywhere. But if you look at the price action on stocks like that, um, it's clearly a bull market in that sector. Now, the debate will be, is it going to turn down or will the rest of the market catch up? Will other sectors catch up? Uh, you know, uh, energy is a sector that last year, last two years has been phenomenally well. Why? Because we were going green. Nobody supported the oil industry. Banks didn't want to lend to them. They basically wanted to shut it down. So the weighting in the indexes went way low on energy. Everybody hated it. For two years, everybody's loved it. Why? Basically, they weren't encouraged to continue looking for more energy, for more oil and gas. So they stopped. They said, we're going to just milk what we have now in reserves, and we're going to return money to the shareholders that have stood behind us in terms of dividends, special dividends, uh, or buying back stock in the market, which is effectively a dividend. They've done phenomenally well. Um, uh, materials. You know, if you buy into the greening of the economy, we're going to need a, a heck of a lot of copper moving forward. Yep. Right? Other critical elements, lithium. Um, you just can't have electric vehicles without the batteries. Nope. The batteries that use the copper or the lithium or the nickel or the cobalt or the zinc, you know, I'll, I'll get into like, I'm going to go off on a tangent here again, Curtis, sorry, but uh, no, you know, mining companies sorry. use a, a hell of a lot of fuel to 
dig dig up rock, crush rock, yeah. process it, put it on a ship, and send it across the world. I'm going to keep adding fuel to this fire. Yeah. I, I want to stay on this energy topic because we, we could talk a lot about energy. And I think there's just a lot of times I'll just have a little precursor here before you go off because you know a lot more about this than I do. People have, there's a lot of people that don't fully understand. And I'm, look, I'm by no means an expert, but there's a lot of people that don't, that don't fully understand the realities of how energy consumption actually works. And people just go, oil, bad, coal, bad, coal is bad, you yeah. know. But they just go oil bad, oil bad, oil bad, and all these. They're they're constantly made out to be the villain, and I'm not saying that they don't emit CO2 emissions when you're extracting the the energy from from the ground. I'm not saying that, but there are just realities about energy consumption stuff like that. But here, I'm gonna let you go off what, where you were just talking about with regards to the mining companies and and the fuel that they have to use to extract all these um, resources to put into the batteries. Sure. So so bottom line bottom line. There's an there's a, a, a carbon footprint to mining the metals that will be used yeah. in electric vehicles. So sometimes it's misunderstood the whole greening of the economy because without copper and without the, the footprint of mining copper or anything else, you don't have it. Um, another point of view that I have uh, and, and might be a little different than others is we are going to use oil for the foreseeable future and we're going to use more of it. Mm -hmm. Because as much as we recognize the climate's changing and we have to do something about it, you can't just stop using fossil fuels. Now, you can do things progressively. You know, you don't go to wind and solar overnight. No. Um, the the footprint of building the the blades on a wind turbine Concrete is a huge carbon emitter. Mm -hmm. The concrete on, on the footing of a of a windmill or a wind turbine all have an impact. So the reality, if you, you can live in an ulterior reality where, you know, we have to go green or we're all going to burn and, and cities are going to flood, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. But there's a price to pay for going green. And I'll, I'll plug a book, if you don't mind. I'm just in the middle of reading it. It's called How the World Really Works. Mm -hmm. And it explains how fossil fuels have turned the agriculture business, feeding the world from a horse-drawn plow to combines that do the work of 20 people much more efficiently. And therefore, we're able to have enough food around the world to feed the nations that we're starving before. If you stop using fossil fuels and go backwards with the efficiencies in agriculture or make it too expensive to buy battery-driven tractors and so on and so forth, and it can go in a million different directions, people will starve. Uh, oil which, is, is, which is what's happening right now in countries. There's like take Sri Lanka, for example. Yeah. Again, I'm not an expert on this, but I know they're in a lot of trouble right now. Uh, there's a lot of people that that can't eat and w when the price of food goes up for you and i if the price of a loaf of bread goes up a dollar it's not going to make a difference in our lives for someone that lives on a dollar a day for work it is going to make a massive difference in their lives and there's a lot of these poor countries that are starving there are people dying of starvation um, and a lot of it has to do with this i think mismanagement 
with regards to the green transition. And we have to remember, and I'm getting, I always want to make it clear. I'm not saying we, we should be trying to use cleaner energy. I a hundred percent, I am on board with this, but to do it in an ethical way. And right now I just don't think it's being done responsibly or logically, especially in our country right now, like people don't realize, especially with what's going on, very hush hush, the US, they're starting to approve liquid natural gas. And just for the record, liquid, and I'm sure you know this, but for yeah. the viewers, liquid natural gas burns 50% cleaner than coal, it burns 50% cleaner than fuel, fuel oil. It's a very, the extraction process, yes, it can get a little bit messy, but there are ways around this. And so the US, They've been sanctioning these projects. They've been letting the people use the liquid natural gas because of the price of energy. Well, guess what Germany's been using to give energy to the people? Mostly coal. Coal's a hell of a lot worse for the environment than liquid natural gas. And so, like, I don't understand why right now it's like in Canada, they just don't, I don't know. It's like they're not even using their, it, it doesn't make any sense to me at all my blood pressure just shot up <laughs> um it's like and i get and and here's the last part it's like you you gotta follow the money the environmental industry it's a very big industry today mm -hmm. and there's lobbying done in the environmental industry just like any other industry you know banking oil telecommunications there's lobbying that's done and I'm not saying it's as easy to just poof switch. Okay, yeah, we're going to start extracting all this. The the We're going to start extracting liquid natural gas. We're going to sanction projects to be done. Let's fire up the, we're going to start getting oil from Alberta all over again. I, I know it's not that simple. There are political realities that have to be done. But yeah, I would agree. It's just a little bit frustrating when Canada, we have all these natural resources and we're just sitting on it and we're not using it. How do we think that... People don't realize that the oil industry is a big contributing factor to um, to the welfare state in Canada and just our quality of life. If we don't use the energy that we have in the country, what do you think we're going to use? We don't have much else here. We have real estate and basically energy, and mine, we can call mining energy. Uh, like the the quality of life as a Canadian is is going to go down um, over time. And here's just the last point. I'm going off on a bit of a tangent as well. If we get if we're not going to extract our oil, do you like? The reality is the world is going to consume, I think it's 100 billion uh, barrels of oil per day right now. Million. 100, 100 million, million, excuse yeah. me. So 100 million barrels of oil per day. And all the predictors are saying that that number is over the next 10, 15 years, it's not going to go down. It's going to continue to go up for whatever reason. You know, like China and India, I don't think they really care about or, or, or developing emerging nations. They're not going to care about this. So the point I'm just trying to make is if we're the oil that we're not going to extract the oil here for whatever reason, okay, political reasons, fine. Do you think that a country like Venezuela, do you think a country in these other continents that don't care as much about the environment are going to extract this oil in an ethical way with regards to CO2 emissions? Probably not. So in the aggregate for the actual amount of CO2 emissions that's going up into the air, it's going to be worse for the planet, which in turn is going to contribute to global warming quicker. People don't realize this. And again, just goes back to the same thing. Oil, bad, oil, bad. We're not going to get off oil over the next 10, 15 years. And then the environmentalists are going to go, well, we have to start somewhere. It's like, okay, so there, and there is an argument to be made there as well, but I'll let you take it from here. That's, I've, I've said my part and kind of just. Right, <laughs> might need another show. <laughs> um, you know, Canada has 
uh, I might be off by one or two places. I believe the third largest natural gas reserves on the planet and fourth or fifth oil. Yeah. Um, it's probably the more, most ethically sourced with a, a, you know, with a conscience. Um, the whole ESG thing about the environment, Canadian companies are doing things now like uh, carbon capture and, and sequestration. You take carbon out of the atmosphere with machinery and you bury it in cement or in underground. Uh, you know, there's there's more progress being made working with in collaboration with First Nations rather than just to heck with them. We're just going to do what we want. There's more involvement and collaboration. Uh, we just do things, uh, you know, in a, in a much better way than the rest of the world. Yet we get painted with a, you know, uh, in, in a bad way in the view of others. Now, who is, again, this is my point of view, but I've I've done my share of work on this. There are lobby groups in the U.S. that basically want to keep Canadian energy to themselves. Like if we can't get it out of Canada, it's cheaper for the states while the state sells oil to Europe and Asia or mm -hmm. natural gas, right? That's one aspect of it. We are the best in the world at taking care of the environment, remediating the tar sands after we take oil out. They'll plant trees and they'll do all kinds of stuff. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll use they'll clean water that's been used. I mean, there's a million different things I could talk about. So let's just, you know, start with the fact that we have the best uh, way of extracting energy in the world. One of the issues is uh, certain levels of government, let's put it that way, uh, to remain apolitical, don't want to they, they view like we're contributing to the destruction of the planet so we have to stop doing that mm -hmm. people in india people in southeast asia or parts of africa i'm sure are tired of riding bicycles and mopeds mm -hmm. they're going to want to get a car at some point in time as the economies evolve mm -hmm. those countries i think uh again i'm no expert but in my view don't really care that much about the environment. So nope. if it's a global issue and we're, we are making, you know, taking measures to rein in our footprint, even though I think Canada's 3% of the, the carbon footprint globally, I have to ask myself, are, is our leadership doing the right thing? Would we be better off selling our resources to the world market? and maybe using some of the, the money that comes in and pays for our hospitals and arenas and schools uh, for better means to improve yeah. things, to improve technology. Yeah. That's where I think we should go. I mean, there is a project that is going on right now in Kitimat, BC, yeah. um, that is going to deliver liquefied natural gas from what's called the Montney region of Alberta, BC to markets in Korea, Japan, uh, Vietnam, probably China as well. There, there's Asian oil companies that are involved in this. And it involves bringing these huge floating LNG rigs to just off the coast. You fill them up and they go back to Asia, They're to the Asian market. Yeah, it's actually a, it's, it's a boat that uh, I'll try and explain it as quickly as possible. You park offshore because you need a deep water port to bring these massive things in. Yeah. So liquefied natural gas is is frozen to a really low temperature. So it's liquefied and then it's regasified on the other end. But prices in natural gas in Asia are, depending on where we are, five, six, seven, eight, nine times higher there than they are here. Yeah. Because ours goes to the States. There's nowhere else for it to go. Now we're going to have the ability to send it overseas. 
Um, so that's a good thing. It's also cheaper because logistically, it's a beeline from BC to Asia. Yeah. Uh, often uh, US LNG, if, unless it's going off the off a West Coast port like LA or something, it's yeah. got to go through the Panama Canal all the way around. So it's like one and a half yeah. times longer. For those of you that don't know, by the way, LNG is liquid natural gas. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, sorry, go on. cleaner burning, right? It's used. Yeah. Uh, it will be a transition fuel is what it's being called. Rather than using coal to fire power plants, we'll use yeah. liquefied natural gas. And I, I heard too for coal, like not only does it burn, it's not very good for the environment when you're actually burning it. So what it does though, is that when you're burning it, when you're using it, the sediment after you're done using it, it gets caught in the air and it actually ends up landing, for example, on the top of mountains. So that is going to, and it, it um, I have no idea how, but it attracts the sunlight more. So it actually heats up the the area even quicker, which in turn contributes even more to global warming. So coal is, everyone knows coal is not good. It, it's, it's, it's not good for the environment at all. But when prices get too expensive for countries to consume energy, they're going to go to the cheapest form of energy. And one of the cheapest forms of energy is coal. Um, so, you know, no one ever talks about right now, Germany, the pickle that they're in, or, and a lot of other places in Europe are using more coal than they have been over the past 10 years because they can't, a lot of people can't, well, they're not even getting, it's just a big mess with the energy that they have to, I'm doing like, I can, I'm going to start over right here. They were getting cheap energy and now they're not for the geopolitical issues that are going on right now. And so they've reverted back to coal. This is, makes it even worse. Correct. Um, I mean, the uh, the pipelines were were cut off. Yeah. Blown up. Actually, uh, the Nord yeah. Stream two was blown up. Yeah. So there's no longer gas coming in from uh, Russia into yeah. into Western Europe. Yep. So Germany was actually, if not completing, completed their weaning off of coal. They were very close. They were shutting these things down. They had to reopen them. Yeah. To have energy, right? Otherwise, you freeze through the winter. We were actually very fortunate to have had a mild winter mm -hmm. in Europe. And prices went crazy on liquefied natural gas in the European markets because they you store it, right? Like, yeah. you're, we're storing now for next winter, basically. Yeah. Um, storage is full right now, so natural gas prices have plummeted. Um, there's even, I've heard uh, one point of view that they could go to zero like oil did a few years ago, but that's the commodities markets. It's not really the price. Yeah. There's just too much of it. But moving forward, you know, we have to get that gas to the European market, which again, Canada's in a great spot, but we don't have an exporting facility on the East Coast. No. Uh, we talked, there was talk about uh, reopening one, uh, reversing it because it's an import facility, but that was dropped this week, I believe. Um, so... There are other projects that are opening but up. But it's just like for people to understand, it's like, it's obviously political. Yes. You know, the current leadership, they don't want to extract liquid natural gas, but it's like, okay, well, you claim to care about the environment, but we can export this liquid natural gas over to Germany. If we do not do this, they are going to continue to consume more coal, which in the aggregate is worse for the environment. Why are you... you you say you care about the environment. I, I I don't understand it. Yeah. Well, this winter was coal or freeze, right? Yeah, they I chose mean, coal. And you know what? Ten times out of ten, they're they're going to choose coal. Yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> farmers that aren't growing. Uh, I, I do know a couple of farmers uh, in Scotland, actually. And what I understand is the cost of natural gas to refrigerate their potato storage 
warehouses is too expensive so they just don't grow potatoes it's too expensive you're gonna lose money yeah so there's a shortage of potatoes same thing in so, france like, like a lot of places in europe there's this guy from france he just came here over from france and he said a lot of uh, small businesses there was a guy for example he owned a patisserie his cost his monthly energy bill went up 10x he had yeah. to go out of business he shut down the business yeah and we're fortunate in Canada, by the way, I learned this yesterday at the conference I was at as well, is that we have the lowest electricity prices by far in the G7. Like really? it's not even close. Yeah, huh. yeah. Everywhere else in the world, it's gone up like 30 to 100% for electricity. Yeah. I think our electricity prices were up 4% last year. Lucky. So it's an advantage, right? It's yeah, an we're economic lucky, yeah. advantage. So yeah. coal's bad, coal's the worst. It's terrible, yeah. It's um, not good, it's not good. You know, the other misunderstanding in my view is that 25% of fossil fuels are used for transportation. The mm -hmm. other 75% is used for, I mean, shingles, pavement, medical devices, plastics, fertilizers, uh, lubricants, perfume, food. Uh, it's used everywhere. And we're gonna continue to use that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's um, you, you sort of can't replace it. But we just have to be smarter moving forward, but it's not gonna happen tomorrow. No. There's a lot of information out there that's basically has an agenda behind it, like lobby groups that want to shut down oil. Do you really want to shut down oil? Because eventually yeah. you're starving the world. End of the day, we have the cleanest, most ethically sourced oil on the planet. And yet there are forces that are trying to make us keep it there while Russia continues to supply their favored nations with oil. And it's a global problem. Like we can do whatever we want to you know, stop having dandelions on our front lawn. If everybody else in the neighborhood doesn't care, then you're, yeah. you're fighting a losing battle. You have to have a global agreement, and I don't see it happening. This was an interesting theory that I heard from, I forget the name of the environmentalist. They had him on a Jerogan podcast, so they had the environmentalist, so it was a little bit more doom and gloom, and then an environmentalist that was more, I guess you could say, realistic. Yes, I do think, he, he was basically saying, I'm paraphrasing, you know, things like, yeah, I agree. We're not we're not going to get off. Let's stop talking about just ending oil tomorrow because it's not going to happen. So just things like this, he was a little bit more realistic in his approach. And his theory was, he said that the quickest way for us to get to the, um, to lower our CO2 emissions is to bring the world out of poverty. And generally speaking, to bring people out of poverty, I mean, they are going to buy cars, they're going to start to eat steak, they're going to start to, you know, drink fine wine, and all these things are going to contribute to their to the carbon footprint quicker. But what he said was, the quicker we can bring people out of poverty, the faster we're going to get to, like, more efficiency in terms of energy consumption. Why? Because that person who's poor, who lives in India or lives in whatever nation or in Africa, they could not care less about the environment. They're worried about their next meal. So that person who's worried about their next meal is not going to care about their CO2 or the carbon footprint that they're putting into the world. So his theory is, he goes, the quicker we can get these people out of that, the quicker we can get them to wealth, then we can teach them, okay, so now they're not worried about their next meal anymore. Now they can actually be concerned about our carbon footprint. And uh, I found that very, very, very interesting as opposed to just the consistent of, oh, the world's overpopulated, bang, we, uh, we need to stop growing so fast which is kind of the consensus right now. That's another argument we could get if you want to really get out there. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't understand. Population growth. Do, do you know about that? I don't understand the theory. It, maybe you do know. Maybe you can speak to this theory that we actually need more people, not fewer. A uh, few people have, have said this. Can you speak to that or not really? In, in layman's terms, like anybody else, I mean... More people means more economic growth, but it also means more mouths to feed and more yes. people consuming carbon. So 
you know, yeah. I guess I, if I just, you know, the lying and lying awake in bed at night thinking about something is I would think that constant population might be the way to go. How do you, how do you mandate that? Oh, geez. Across the world, Who right? Knows? You can only have two kids. They tried it in China. I think that's been lifted in China now, right? One child? Yeah, because their population demographics are not good at all. Yeah. The, the one side for Canada right now with all the immigration coming in is the fact that the um, the, demogra- the the age category of the people coming into our country, from what I've heard, is actually very good. Like they're on the younger end of the spectrum. So people like yourself that are, you know, you're going to retire sooner rather than later, or you're going to retire sooner than I will. You know, we need to have all the baby boomers while they're retiring. Well, how are you guys going to get your pension? If we have younger people coming to the country, they can contribute to the tax base. You guys can go live your lavish lifestyle, sit on the, the <laughs> beach and stuff like that. But um, that is one bright side for, for the immigration. And again, I always make it clear. I am not against immigration, but I, I'm. it's a little bit, I get concerned and I say this all the time. I get concerned when there's this many immigration, this many immigrants coming in, and we don't have a plan for housing. I get very, very, very concerned um, with regards to that in in Canada. And I think if we th- if we think the price of housing is bad now, just wait, because it's gonna get a hell of a lot worse. I mean, just do the math. It's a supply and demand issue. If they're not building more houses, and we just have a million people coming in, what's gonna happen to the housing? Yeah. So it's like, but then there's the other argument too. We need people to fill the job. To fill the jobs so it's it's a conundrum and it's a great point yeah you know it's good for the economy to have more people yes for sure but they need yes. somewhere to live yeah so back circling back to can yeah. i afford to buy a home in my lifetime yeah there might be a generation of renters i think that's where we're headed you know which is probably the way it was when my parents came came here my, grand, my grandfather from Glasgow, because I watched your podcast from where Glasgow? you mentioned Glasgow, and oh, I yeah. said, oh my gosh, that's crazy, because that's where my grandfather was uh, cool. from. Is he Celtic or Rangers? Yeah, he was Rangers. Ooh. Oh, absolutely. Mine was Celtic. <laughs> well, I had a Celtic jersey, and I often joke that my grandfather would be rolling in his grave if he saw me wearing a Celtic jersey. <laughs> um, but those times are behind us, thank God. But yeah, uh, but yeah I mean, he came here in, uh, he came here in the 20s. Yeah. with a young family lived in Verdun. My mother's family was also from Scotland. They lived in Verdun. Uh, so that's where their roots go back. My grandfather delivered ice by delivered horse. Ice yeah. By horse. Yep. When he came here in the twenties, I think. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. So how times have changed. Wow. Yeah. But, uh, hang on, we've gone off on a tangent again, <laughs> but yeah, so listen, I, uh, oil, we're not going to live without it. We need it. We need to be smart about the way we extract it and burn it. Yeah. It's used everywhere. It's used in concrete. Concrete's one of the worst culprits for carbon emissions. Yeah. And and I think it's like, because there's there's two ways we can go about this. There's two, there's one way, which I don't think is the right way. You can say, you idiots, we need to extract oil and shove it down the throat. That's not going to work. And that's also not what I'm saying. I think we need to have an honest conversation about energy policy in Canada because we I keep repeating myself we have this big we have all these resources for energy that we can supply to the rest of the world and we can extract it in an ethical way that's going to be more efficient than other nations which in turn is going to emit in the aggregate I mean if we're going to consume 100 million barrels of oil a day it's that's what we're going to consume so if we can get that oil to market 
and extract it cleaner than other countries in the aggregate this is going to contribute to global warming less and no one's having that conversation you should run for office i'll never run for office <laughs> i don't blame you but but <laughs> again let's backtrack to the reality right is a lot of votes you know you can get a lot of votes by saying i'm going to save the world and go green even though it's a lot it's a, look i'm going to go out on a limb here it's basically a lie. We can't go green in the near future. You just can't unless you're willing to make massive sacrifices. You know, are you going to lower your thermostat to 60 all winter long? Are you going to not use air conditioning? Or, you know, oil is used in, it's used in pharmaceuticals. It's used in building roads, shingles. Uh, I mean, it's used everywhere. And the people lecturing us are flying around the world in their private jets. That's one of the jokes, right? Was when uh, I won't name the actor, but you could probably figure out who yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah, There's yeah. a couple of them that would go up to the tar sands in Alberta yeah, and say, yeah. look at this bloody mess that's being yeah. created in the name of the oil industry uh, while they have a yacht with two helicopters on it. So I know. And CO2, just look up for those listening. Look up CO2 emissions of a private jet. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. So yeah. These people lecturing us, they're going to contribute more to the carbon footprint than you and I um, in our lifetimes. Yeah, but something that's out there that eventually I think we'll have, but we don't have now, the technology is, of course, hydrogen. Yeah. Nuclear is clean. Yeah, nuclear. That, you know? Do you know anything about nuclear? I heard that we, Canada right now is actually a an industry leader for nuclear energy. Yeah. It's by far the cleanest. The debate is always, well, what do we do with it once we're done using it? which is a good debate. I don't really know anything about it, but do you know anything? Can you speak to nuclear uh, energy? A little bit. I mean, um, it's hard to get new projects approved. Uh, things like and, Fukushima, right, are like yeah. in, your, in your recent memory. Yeah. That's the worst case scenario is a nuclear disaster. Yeah. But technology is better. I think what Canada has, and I, I'm not 100% certain, is a, a modular reactor technology. So you could actually take a small reactor, take it up to Sudbury, for example, and it would power Sudbury because it's a small cookie cutter reactor that's state of the art, much safer, and it's clean. It's clean energy, right? But it seems to be out of favor right now. Like I think, I'm not sure about this either, but I think France has said, no, was it France or Germany? One of them said, we're gonna shut down all of our nuclear, uh, nuclear plants. And there is the problem of disposing of nuclear waste. But technology They said this is, recently? Uh, I think it's just common knowledge. Oh, closing the... Their, yeah. Yeah, someone was denuclearizing. I think France has a lot of, of nuclear-generated power. Um, but, I mean, if you're talking about... There's always a positive and a negative. If you want to clean up the environment, nuclear is the way to go. Yeah. it's clean. It is, yeah. But there's the risk, right? Nobody wants a reactor in their backyard. So... You're kind of stuck in limbo there. And it costs, it takes 10 years at least and costs billion dollars plus to build a, a reactor. I heard China ha is building, I want to actually say it's as much as a, a hundred plans to build a hundred nuclear power plants. Uh, that sort of sounds like I've heard that before. We yeah. also have a lot of uranium in Canada. One of the wor one of the world's largest resources of uranium. We've got it all here. We have it all here. We're very lucky in this country. We just yeah, got to make sure do, we manage we, it properly. Yeah. We, which we're not doing, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I, I know yeah. I know it's your opinion, but it's just, it's this is good. It's it's because a lot of times, and I've had these these debates, it's not really a debate, this, it's more of a conversation. I've had these conversations with my friends before, and it's always just the, 
It's the narrative, the narrative, oil, bad, oil, bad. We yeah. need to go green, 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 green. And then, but there's just realities. It's like, okay, well, like you said, do you want to put your thermostat to 16 for the whole winter? You probably don't. Okay, well, that car that you have right there. Okay, well, stop driving so much. Go take the bike everywhere. You're not going to do that. Stop taking all these trips down to, you know, Mexico every winter. They're not going to stop doing that. No. And so there's all these things that, you know, it's like they don't, they don't want to sacrifice their quality of living, their standard of living, but they want you to do it. And it just gets tiring. <laughs> I think if you are for fighting climate change, you're good, right? You're doing the right thing. It's positive. If I go out there and say, I love oil and we need oil, I'm bad because I'm promoting the destruction of the planet. There's falsehoods everywhere out there. Um, the reality is, is we're not getting off of oil anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Uh, the other reality is there's a lot of interest groups that promote their agenda yes. for various reasons, yes. economic, yeah. business, and political. Yeah. Um, there's another, I don't want to say that this has sways my view one way or another, but it's something that's very interesting is if you go on YouTube, it's called Over a Barrel. And it's a video about um, lobby groups and interest groups that fight the Canadian fossil fuel industry for motives that are usually based to we want we want to disadvantage canada um you know you can watch it and make up your own mind yeah but it's definitely interesting it doesn't mean i believe the argument but it certainly opens up your eyes to the other side of the argument yeah on I, uh, what's really happening i think you mentioned this a little bit earlier i heard that there are oil groups in uh, texas for example they like the fact that we're not extracting any of our well any that's of our exactly oil. what i'm sort of uh referring, yeah. alluding to right is yeah. is they get cheap oil because we can't sell it anywhere else. Yeah. Right. You want to build a pipeline? No, I'm sorry. You can't build a pipeline to the West yeah. Coast because that's going to, that means we don't get oil. Yeah. Right. And then if you look at the pipelines that were, were proposed, the one, um, uh, the Keystone pipeline that was, the first day in office, Biden canceled the Keystone pipeline. Yeah. Okay. So uh, again, I'll touch a bit on politics, but the U.S. is saying we need more oil. We need more oil. You have to drill. Now Biden's approved drilling in Alaska. Yeah, which was a don't a no go place, right? We're not gonna never gonna drill in Alaska. At the same time, we have tons of Canadian oil that's reasonably priced that we could send down to the U.S. Gulf Coast where most of it's refined and exported. But you don't want to have a pipeline going through your backyard, so no pipeline. We put it on a train, which is not necessarily better. Pipelines are the most efficient, safest way to send. It's yeah, just they are. if it's going under a river or a lake, everybody yeah. freaks out. And despite the technology that you know, is safer today than ever uh, as far as transporting by pipeline. Nobody wants it through running through their their county or their their state. And one gentleman, he was talking about this. He's an oil expert. He lives in. I forget where he lives, but he's originally from Alberta. And he said that one of the big reasons why we can't build a pipeline over to Europe uh, is because it needs to pass through Quebec. And Quebec is a big place where Quebec does not like oil. Oh, you'll all. never see a pipeline to Europe. Uh, that, that's way too far, but you, you could see like an export facility. Excuse me, that's what he meant. An export yeah. facility to the eastern yeah. coast of Canada. That's what he was referring to. But Quebec will always block that. Maybe for, again, this is, if I had to just guess, um, you know, Quebec's big in hydroelectric energy. Maybe play with the price there. Maybe that's one of the reasons why they don't want it again i'm not an expert do you know anything about politics. that a lot of it's i politics, i know right? i know po it's all outside of politics obviously yeah. politics and stuff but we, we we speak with like we 
just back to the the core business for a while for a moment like we we talk to people in alberta all the time like we invest in oil and gas and canadian oil and gas yeah. primarily uh, almost exclusively yeah and so we deal with you know firms on the street that provide us with research and we they set up meetings with executives from oil companies out west and stuff like that so basically they don't like quebec because you know we don't want to help them transport their energy uh, through Quebec. We don't want a pipeline through Quebec. There's a political motivation behind that. Quebec actually has a lot of reserves as far as natural gas goes. That's been buried. Um, but again, I don't know 100%, but I think I'm pretty much correct on this. There is oil that comes into the east coast of Canada. We have refineries in the east end of Montreal. Where's that oil coming from? A lot of it's coming by pipeline from either uh, uh, Portland, Maine, or New Brunswick, and you do have tanker activity, like oil tankers, with oil from, I could be mistaken on this, but maybe Libya, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Mexico, and it's, there's a risk that, I mean, imagine beluga whales washing up in a bunch of oil on, in the St. Lawrence River. You never hear about that, but the reality is, is this is how the oil gets here, and we refine it in the east end of Montreal. Um, so for the Nord Stream 2, so the pipeline from Russia over into Germany, who blew up that pipeline? No one knows for sure, but come on, it's, it's everyone, yeah. everyone's pretty sure it's the U.S. And you don't hear a peep about all that oil spilling into the ocean. Not yeah. a peep, Yeah. you know? So, yeah. yeah. I guess all in all, I think it's just important that we start having more and more people are starting to do it, which is nice. I think it's important just to have realistic conversations about energy in Canada and honest conversations about energy in Canada. And I think it's time we move past this oil, bad, liquid natural gas, bad, solar, wind. The realities are solar and wind is not going to be able to pun intended, fuel our lifestyle yeah. um, the way that we're used to. Unless everyone uh, tomorrow stops using a car and doesn't heat their house and stops taking planes and vacations and stops eating fancy steaks and all this kind of stuff. Like, unless we do that, which is not going to happen, I mean, we, there's just certain realities. And the the big things I keep, I, I consider myself a realist. I always go back to the the facts and the facts are we're consuming as a world between 100 it's 95 and 105 million barrels of oil per day that number is most likely to go up this is globally most likely to go up over the next 10 to 15 years if that's the case then you know what are we doing here in canada we haven't there's an opportunity here that's not very popular politically, but on the background for the people that actually run the country, you know, I, I think they're they're being. They're, the, I I can't imagine they're not having these conversations about like, okay, guys, let's let's bring the adults to the room. We need to actually have an honest conversation. We need to kind of rethink what we're doing because right now the U.S. as environmentally friendly as they are, they are sanctioning these types of projects to happen, and their capital. Why is only the U.S. providing affordable energy over to Europe? Why aren't we? They're buying our natural gas, consuming it domestically, and exporting their own gas to Europe and making money. What on the, the hell? On the difference. It's a great arbitrage trade. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and we're letting this happen. 
Yeah, you know, but you know, there I heard a saying in, in the last few months that uh, the best time to build an LNG facility or a pipeline was ten years ago. Yeah, the second best time is today. Yeah. Now, whether that's true or not, we'll never, you know, probably won't know for a long time because yeah. you you commit for a ten year program to build a facility and then who knows where we are ten years from now where we're using hydrogen. And yeah. is natural gas somewhat obsolete we don't know that right and just to circle back on oil bad oil good or oil bad yeah oil does a lot of good right yeah. it's in fertilizers that help feed the world yeah it's used in pharmaceuticals yeah it's used in medical equipment um so there's a lot of good things that oil is used for cars well yeah what has a bigger this is another argument that you can you know google it and read about it is the economic is the uh, sorry is the carbon footprint of an electric vehicle larger than the carbon footprint of an internal combustion engine because of the the copper the zinc the metals the lithium that you have to mine process transport and include into a battery and ultimately dispose of mm -hmm. what's greener we're taught that electric cars are good maybe they're not hmm. and the stress to charge your cars if half the population had a electric vehicle you have to charge it i don't think we're not even close to building that, that infrastructure you know? no but just the consumption rates of electricity will oh, go that through too. the roof right yes. so where yeah. does electricity come from in a lot of jurisdictions coal so you can see how the whole yeah you know yeah that's is an interesting thing to think about where's the electricity in quebec it's great because we have hydro yes. right so yeah. we're we're very fortunate and even hydro to some extent there is a if you're going to consume energy, I mean, it's just physics at the end of the day. There is a carbon footprint to hydroelectric power as well. Is it cleaner than oil? It, it is. But there's still, there's a carbon footprint to anything. Yeah. Well, building building James Bay, for example. Yeah. I mean, dislocated a lot of people and a lot of land. Uh, it was very controversial, but it's, it's benefited Quebec for sure. Yeah. But what happens if the rivers run dry? This is something we think about, right? Like if the wind doesn't, this was a problem in Europe, I believe in 2021, the wind didn't blow the summer of 2021. So the power sourced from wind fell. So they had to replace that with, you know, uh, carbon emitting coal or natural gas because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. So you need a backup. Mm -hmm. Another argument for fossil fuels, you need a backup system, fossil fuels, is a good backup system. It, it functions almost all of the time, right? There's no downtime. Nuclear has basically no downtime. Yeah. Uh, wind, solar, and in some cases, hydro. I, I think in actually in Nevada or California, the Hoover Dam was low. So I don't think they were generating as much because the water levels were so low in California, mm. right? Now they've been flooded. So that takes care of the, the drought problem for a while anyways. And the snow hasn't, this is another thing I heard talking to my friends in California, is yeah, we got like inundated with floods, right? This winter. Yeah. And the snow hasn't even melted yet in the north. So there's going to be even more water flowing into California. They were dying for water for three years. Now they've got more than they could ever want. So, you know, is this today's climate? Was it always this way and we're just noticing it now? I don't have the answers to that. Yeah. Yeah. No one does. But it's something to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I'll just repeat honest conversations about this type of stuff. I'm not trying to take a trying to keep it as apolitical as possible. But, you know, there are certain realities to humans being humans and wherever we're going to go, we're going to consume energy. There's going to be a carbon footprint. How are we going 
going to use, what type of energy we're going to use and how are we going to extract it? And just people need to understand the, the realities of all this. Yep. And there's, there's no honest conversations going on. There's more and more in the podcast, but in the mainstream, like just the, the narrative outside of, you know, podcast world and stuff like that. It's, you know, there's always an agenda behind it. Yeah. You know, that's what's, yeah. that's what's bothersome the most is yeah. if you are genuinely trying to do something yes. to benefit the planet and society and our future, again, exactly what you said, you need an honest conversation yes. because most of the people I know can say, yes, I'm, you know, I'm buying an electric car. Yeah. I recycle like a maniac. I just do it because I think it's my, it's responsible to do it. Um, but am I willing to forego a vacation to Florida because I'm flying? Yeah. And a lot of times too, even for the recycling, people don't realize this either, especially in the downturn of an economy, when the economy is going through a downturn, you probably know this, but a lot of the stuff you put in the recycling bin never gets recycled. It just goes into, into the garbage dump. Because yeah. <laughs> if the recycling centers can't resell the recycled produce, you know, they only have so much room to to store all the recycled produce. Well, yeah. they just throw it into the garbage dump. Yeah. You <laughs> so, know, what's yeah. A, a common sense solution? Again, yeah. when I was a kid, the milkman dropped off the milk at the front door in a glass bottle. Yeah. Uh, you returned the glass bottle and it got refilled with milk again and reused again. Yeah. Now we have cartons and plastic bags to supply our milk. And that, I'm sure, adds up to tons of waste. Yeah. So if you really want to be, if we, we want to be green as a society, maybe something that says, you know what, let's go back to putting milk in a glass bottle. Sounds simple, but it would make a difference. Hmm. And I'm not a super greenie. I'm just saying that's reality, right? It's common sense. Yeah. At the end of the day. Yeah. Well, they do that for the, um, they do a good job with the beer, I think, putting incentives. You know, like if you're paying a two four back, you get two dollars and forty cents back. Sure, well you're paying for it, right? You're paying. So yeah. you pay for the milk bottle. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You're incentivized to do yeah. it, and you bring it back, get get uh, some money back. I think that's a pretty good idea. I think it works pretty well too for uh, beer. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've heard like blue bin, blue bin cops, right? We'll go through a neighborhood and see if you're uh, recycling or not, and what you're throwing in your blue bin. I mean, I don't know if that's just like a urban legend or if it's true. I've never seen them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the blue paint cups. Or you're into your garbage to see if you're throwing recyclables away in your garbage. You know, what, do you mandate you, that you have to recycle? They can give you a ticket. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's again, it's probably urban legend. But how, oh, how far do you so. go, right? <laughs> I hope Curtis, so. you can't throw your your beer bottles into yeah. the garbage. You have to take them yeah. back to the store. They do have that now, though, and this pisses me right off, and I'm sure it pisses a lot of people off too. They have these um, dog police. So they'll go around making sure your dog's on a leash. And there is this baseball game going on in our neighborhood. And, you know, a bunch of people had their dogs there. And the dog, it's in an enclosed area. And the dog, you know, they're just playing. They're running around and stuff. It's a softball game. There's a bunch of people there. These a-holes came in and they gave tickets to the dog owners because they were off a leash. Yeah. What's this world coming to? Uh, Bill, what's this world coming what? to? It's uh, sometimes we go too far with stuff. You know, uh, again, I don't want to go off again on a whole new podcast, but like at what point are your liberties violated? Because you, I mean, keeping your dog on the leash in a city park is probably not a bad idea if your dog <sighs> might bite somebody. Yeah. Obviously, we don't want to get bitten by a dog, but there's a lot of stuff that we've just gone too far. Like it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people feel the same way. Yeah, but they're afraid to say it. 
I think it's the fact that everyone just kind of just goes along with it and they go, oh, it's a rule now. Oh, we have to do that. Or things ain't so bad. You know, we're better off here than we are in a third world country. Yes. You roll with the punches and who has time to do this or do that or, you know, or there's a fee for this. There's a fee for that. There's a tax for this. There's a tax for that. I mean, where does it end? Last comments. Yeah. Federal budget. Um, Honestly, it's not something that I pay a lot of attention to. I didn't either. I was the, hoping you did. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I look at the market reaction. The okay. market reaction, uh, that's really... What, know, what What was the market reaction to the Canadian uh, federal uh, budget? Canadian budget. It's, I mean, I think I think the reaction was, uh, you know, for for energy and renewables, it was good. For mining, it was good. Like companies that, like those are, you know, companies that produce uh, critical minerals, it's good. Um, I some of the pushback i heard was it's there's stimulus in there hmm. we're trying to stop inflation in its tracks by raising interest rates yet we're stimulating certain parts of the economy that doesn't make sense like i've heard that comment from some economists like what are you what are you doing hmm. you know you're jacking up rates on everybody and then you're stimulating in certain areas that probably don't need to be stimulated we need to destimulate to slow down the economy you know, which again is uh, kind of, uh, I think, a much better scenario than always trying to stimulate the economy because people are unemployed, right? And just another thought I had about interest rates, you know, and, and so on and so forth with the budget. I mean, two years ago, central banks had no leeway to lower rates to stimulate the economy. Mm-hmm. And now they do. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that's been repaired and sort of brought back to the norm is they now have the ability to lower rates if they need to stimulate, which they may need to do maybe in 2024. Again, that's speculation, but that's sort of the what the markets are telling us is that they will start to cut at some point. They'll have to, particularly if they cause a severe recession, you know, which again leads to another, I'll be brief. What is a recession? Mm. People ask me, oh, recession, recession, that's terrible, that's terrible. And I, I try to use layman's term and I say, well, what's a hurricane, right? It's a storm, it causes a lot of damage. You could have a hurricane that, you know, knocks over your patio furniture and takes two shingles off your roof. Or you could have one that blows your house down. Mm-hmm. So when you have a recession, you have to qualify it as what kind of recession is it? What type of recession? Um, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have a slowing down in the economy, but you don't want to kill the economy either because it takes a while for that pendulum to swing back the other way. You just don't turn a switch and the recession's over and you've stimulated ourselves back to economic growth. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen that way. So you have to manage it. And and that's where I, you know, a recession is, I think by definition, two quarters in a row of negative GDP growth. Yeah, that's my understanding of it so, as well. So we're in a recession. But did we go down 50 basis points or did we go down by 3% for four quarters in a row? Like there's a difference. They're both recessions, but one is way more severe than the other. So that remains to be seen where we're headed in that. Hmm. I think that's a good point to leave it off. Sounds good. Mr. Bill Mitchell of Palos Wealth Management, thank you very much for coming on today. And uh, guys, if you like the Freemium Podcast, feel free to subscribe, share it with one of your buddies. Today we had a pretty good um, focus on finance and on energy and on the good old days of working on the trading floor. I enjoyed today's conversation a lot. Likewise. Thanks a lot, Bill. Thank you.